So, <laughs> I feel like I'm on fucking cocaine tonight, Rich. This is, this is wonderful. Uh, <laughs> Listening to the RF Generation Playcast. The Playcast is the place where Single Banana and I, Grey Ghost 81, discuss the monthly community playthrough games selected by us and played by a community of gamers on RF Generation and social media platforms like Twitter. Every episode features input from the community and maybe some guests. In episode 53, we will conquer not one, but two Sega consoles for the first time in our history. Starting with the Sega Saturn, we'll punch, kick, and jump our way through Die Hard Arcade. Then we'll helicopter over to its sequel on the Sega Dreamcast when we discuss Dynamite Cop. Do these arcade 3D beat-em-ups hold up today, or are they best left in the cabinet with the president's daughter? Stay tuned to find out. You can listen to our show on Podbean and iTunes, where we always appreciate a good review. On Twitter, we're at RFG Playcast, and Rich is at The Single Banana. Most importantly, be sure to log on to RFGeneration.com to discuss the games with us and have a chance to get mentioned on the show. Thanks again for listening, and now, on with the Playcast. My sister got lucky, married a yuppie, took him for all he was worth. Now she's a swinger, dating a singer, I can't decide which is worse, but not me. thing I ever had In a world gone mad You're so bad My sister's ex-husband Can't get no loving Walks around all faced and hurt Now he's got nothing Head in the oven which is worse But not me, baby I've got you to save me Oh, you're so bad Best thing I ever had In a world gone bad You're so bad Give you some silence. All right.
someone can tell Paul Simon that that is what the sound of silence is like. There you go. Did you watch that video I sent you? No, I didn't. Oh, okay. You got to check that out. He actually kind of changed the format too, because in the videos he was doing previous, he was in his studio and uh, kind of explaining and playing his own instrument. But in this newer one, he does it like kind of documentary style and it's a lot shorter than his other videos. It's like five minutes long. So yeah, I'll check it out, man. I still have it up. So cool. So yeah, I wanted to just kind of throw something really kind of banal and mundane in here, but it's something that we had talked about in our messaging. And I noticed a lot of people in my kind of social circles giving up coffee, which is such a strange idea to me, but the reasons behind it started to kind of make sense. And uh, I had my own reasons to kind of think about it. Uh, Somebody that I'm friends with tried to give it up to calm down and kind of relieve a little bit of anxiety. And then I know this local pop singer who I've talked about before, Katie Rain, she was actually advised to give up caffeinated beverages for her singing voice. Mm, And so I saw all these people around me you know, giving up coffee. So I thought, I'll give it a try. I've been drinking black coffee since I was in, well, I've been drinking coffee since I was in grade (laughs) grade school or middle school. And I started drinking it black when I was in my 20s. I actually, I had a coworker who drank black coffee. And I asked her, why do you drink black coffee? Because I took it light and sweet at the time, you know, tons of cream, tons of sugar. And she said, well, we didn't have cream and sugar in the Gulf. So I just started, (laughs) we had to drink it black. And I was like, no, that's badass. I'm going to drink it black too. <laughs> so, <laughs> since then, I, uh, I've always drank black coffee. Yeah, I don't know, man. I just tried it. I gave it up for about four weeks. And uh, at first, it was good. It really kind of regulated my energy levels. And then, you know, the first week, it sucked. You know, I had the withdrawal headaches and everything and some digestive issues, to be quite honest with you. And, uh, you know, I just decided after a while, okay, this experiment is over. But when I went back to it, I've limited my intake to two to three cups a day. Because what I would do, Rich, is is I would just drink coffee from the time I woke up at four or five in the morning until 12 noon. And I would drink multiple pots of coffee. And you can really make yourself crazy doing that, you know? Oh, yeah. Even if you're used to it, even if you have like a tolerance, like that much caffeine is not good. And it produces high anxiety and heart palpitations and all this stuff. So I've been limiting to two to three cups in the morning. And then this might sound gross, but I don't want my mouth and teeth to be grungy. You know, that, that, that yeah. was another part of it is drinking black coffee on a constant basis is that my teeth were starting to fade a little bit. So now I can, you know, get all my coffee in before I leave for work, but then I can do a really good teeth brushing and rinsing before anything else happens. So, yeah. Is that the most interesting thing we've ever talked about on the show or what? (laughs) I believe it might be. It might be the craziest (laughs) thing, the craziest idea of giving up coffee. Yeah, I've been drinking it since I was a kid, too. And uh, it's one of those things that I have to have now. I'll make a thermos not not a thermos but you know those like travel mugs before i leave in the morning and i'll have that and i might have like another keurig cup while i'm at work i might have one of those like before midday if i'm out when i get to work and then sometimes i'll have one at like four (laughs) in the afternoon yeah caffeine as far as like sleep habits it really doesn't affect me i can have a cup of coffee and go to sleep 
But sometimes before like I go home, I know I've got three kids to deal with and I'm just really dragging during the day. I have to have it. And uh, yeah, like you, we talked about this. Yeah, digestive issues. I've had them since I was a kid. So my doctor actually recommends me to drink coffee. So uh, it's been sort of a lifesaver for me. It's something I could never even consider giving up. Makes total sense. And my wife was happy when I started drinking it again because I'm, I'm a very like mood swingy person. But apparently uh-huh. uh, without coffee. Oh, you too, huh? Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, without coffee, it, it didn't make my mood swings worse, it, but it actually put me in an almost permanent, not bad mood where I was like lashing out at people, but just a bad, gloomy mood. At the heavy most feeling. Right, exactly. Yeah. So, sucks. you know what? I just need that, a little pep in my step in the morning, and that seems to be the sweet spot. My wife bought me a mug that says, coffee makes me poop. It's pretty <laughs> it's great. Words to live by. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> All right, man. Well, now that we've broken the ice, we got a lot to talk about here. So do you want to roll right into the concert cast? Because, man, it's going to be a good one, Rich. Yeah, let's do it, man. You had a great idea for this. Yeah, I'm psyched. But actually, do you want to go first? Because you saw Weezer and the Pixies in between the two recording sessions that we had in our previous (laughs) episode. But you haven't had a chance to talk about that show, and I'm dying to hear about it. Yeah, that's right. I, I keep forgetting. I was like, man, I don't think I have any concert news recently. But I did see Weezer and the Pixies in between. If you remember from our last recording, what happened, we were actually doing our show and I had a lightning storm here. And if you listen kind of closely in the background, you can probably hear a little thunder through the recording that I couldn't edit out. And just all of a sudden, it just knocked out our power for almost 24 hours. If you listen to the last recording, I had a little fun with that, and Travis was kind enough to pick a new date and could start recording again. But in between, I had gone to see that show, and it was good, man. You know, I was really disappointed, and I kind of knew this was going to happen. In, in the Charlotte area, Weezer is like a big band. They come a lot. A lot of times they come at least once, maybe twice a year to this area okay, because uh, they have a lot of fans. But um, I was a little taken back by the Pixies opening up for Weezer. I thought that was kind of strange because the Pixies are such a classic band. And so it was a little odd. The sound was off for about the first three or four songs. You know, usually the sound people are in the back of the audience or like midway up and are adjusting the sound from out in the crowd. Well, the sound person was right up on stage, which doesn't make a lot of sense. Like... How can you hear what's going on if you're up in the middle of it? So maybe they know something I don't. Maybe, you know, some of our listeners do about acoustics and, you know, how that works. But, yeah, it was all for about the first, like I said, three or four songs. But then the Pixies were great. Kim wasn't with them. Uh, I think her and Frank are still at ends. But the girl they had that filled in for her was fantastic. Played a lot of stuff off of Doolittle which I know is an album we'll probably talk about here again in a little while. Right. And uh, yeah, man, solid, solid set. They actually played one of my favorite songs, Cactus, which um, I hadn't heard live before, so that was really awesome. Weezer was cool too, man. I didn't know what to expect. They played a lot of their old stuff, which I was very, very thankful for. I'm not a big fan of their new stuff. I love their first two albums and actually saw them back in college on the Pinkerton tour in Raleigh. 
and just a little small club with a group called Nerf Herder, if you know who those guys are. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, they put on a great show. And one of the things that I really liked uh, was that the lead singer for Weezer changed some of the lyrics, like um, the song In the Garage. Instead of his favorite rock group, Kiss, mm. he said his favorite rock group, The Pixie. So he kind of did like kind of a shout out to them. And and I think that there's probably this kind of knowingness that we should probably be opening up for these guys. You know, these guys are legends. But Weezer, I guess, in its own right, is a pretty popular band, too. So, you know, I think they were having some fun with it. But uh, it seems like they probably all get along pretty well, you know. Yeah, that sounds awesome, and I could be completely mistaken, but I thought I had heard that this was a co-headlining tour, so it is possible that they were playing in that reverse order at other stops that they made on the tour. Yeah, I'm that's true. pretty sure I remember hearing that, so... That's like when Neil Young opened for Pearl Jam back in the day. It's like, wait a minute. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, those guys were good friends because Pearl Jam actually inducted Neil into the Hall of Fame. Right. I remember that. That was pretty cool. They uh, did uh, Rockin' in the Free World together, which was a really neat thing. Yeah. So one of my favorite pieces of rock and roll trivia involves three of my, well, I don't want to call Weezer one of my favorite bands. They have two of my favorite albums, but three of my favorite-ish bands. And uh, I wonder if you've ever heard this. It has to do with Aerosmith, Nirvana, and Weezer. Do you have any clue what I'm going to say? No. uh -uh. Okay, so this is really cool. You know the Aerosmith album, Rocks? I'm familiar with the name. I'm not familiar with the album. So it's a well-loved Aerosmith album. A lot of people say it's their best album. Okay. Now, fast forward to Nirvana recording in utero in 1993-94 with Steve Albini. And they said, we want the drums to sound like Aerosmith rocks. They have this dry, like wide open, like an avalanche kind of sound. And it's just this amazing sound. So they kind of replicated the drum sound from rocks. And then a little bit further into the future, when Weezer was recording Pinkerton, they said, we want the drums on our album to sound like Nirvana in utero. So if you listen (laughs) to those three albums, they have a similar drum sound, and it's kind of this chain of emulating what came before and trying to replicate this specific drum sound. So I always thought that was pretty cool because... Those are three albums I really like. Definitely what most people would consider Weezer's best album, or perhaps, no, I'm not going to say it. (laughs) I'm not going to say it, but I think it's their best album. It's one of my favorite, too. Yeah, Yeah, I love Pinkerton, man. Uh, Yeah, and they also played Pink Triangle, which I was really, really stoked about. Love that song. That's awesome, man. It's funny, a coworker of mine is a huge, huge Weezer fanatic. And when they came through on this tour, he had tickets for it. And then I forget his exact reasoning, but he ended up not going to the show. He like sold his tickets. And I was like, dude, I would have went with you. Like, what What the hell? <laughs> and I think he was just like, oh, I've seen them enough times. It's like, man, he literally has a Weezer tattoo. And it's like, there are bands I will see, I would see a hundred times. You know, yeah. If I had yeah, the, the Pixies is one of those. <laughs> For me, anyway. Yeah.
All right, so I was listening to Retro Fandango, my favorite podcast about food safety and food handling practices. And in episode 91, they were talking about the blockbuster movies of 1989. This was particularly interesting to me because one of the movies that came out in 1989 was Tim Burton's Batman. And I remember this being, at the time, the biggest movie in the world. And I begged my parents to let me see it. And I remember very distinctly my dad taking me to see it and I was wearing my Batman t-shirt and it was awesome. And still to this day, it's one of my favorite movies. Uh, But they had a topic on their show about the summer blockbusters of 1989. And uh, I talked to Kevin and the original plan was to do it on episode 89, which would have made a little bit more sense, they thought. But the topic got delayed. But anyway, just to give you an idea, some of the movies that came out in 89, Batman, The Little Mermaid, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, UHF with Weird Al, um, The Abyss, Ghostbusters 2, Glory, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, like all these great movies. And you you should really go back and listen to that episode of Retro Fandango and all their episodes. It's one of our favorite podcasts. And, you know, uh, Buried on Mars and uh, Ram Fox are good friends of ours. So go check them out. But anyway, that got me thinking. I've always thought that 1989 was a really good year for album releases. And if you look at the releases for albums that came out in 87 and 88, and then you look at 90 and 91, it seems like 89 is like this kind of a valley in like major record releases. But I think 1989 is kind of an unsung year for high quality record releases. And I thought we could talk about some of our favorites from that year. The way I propose we do this, Rich, because I have literally a notebook page filled (laughs) with with album (laughs) releases, because what I've been doing over the past, I want to say three or four weeks, is I made a playlist on Spotify with about a thousand songs in it, and I've just been listening to it on a constant basis, just trying to find new things. The whole playlist of, obviously, 1989 music that was released that year. We each did a top five, and we each have a couple honorable mentions. So I think we should just go through the honorable mentions, then do our top five, and then it might be a little anticlimactic, but then I just want to do like a flyover of the other like notable releases. Does that make sense to you? Absolutely sounds good, but let's be honest here when we talk about honorable mentions. There's two albums that we both said, okay, neither one of us can pick either of these albums, right? Right. Our tastes overlap quite a lot. They do. And so we knew that both of us would be picking these two albums, so we kind of cut them out, right? Well, that's good, because I thought you were going to take one of them, and I said, you know what? I'm not going to fight it. I'll just let you have it, because that gives me another (laughs) slot in my top five to pick something else. So, I mean, we're going to talk about it anyway. Do you want to start with those two, or...? Yeah, yeah, let's do it. All right, so the first one we've already mentioned, The Pixies' Doolittle came out in 1989. Mm. Dude, to me, this is like one of the best albums ever made. It's it's so yeah. perfect. It's so amazing. It's so ahead of its time. I mean, the sounds of the guitars, the, the songwriting from Frank Black, it's just, it's amazing. It's weird to talk about music sometimes on this show because we can just use all these adjectives, like it sounds amazing. It's groundbreaking and all these things, but like it's got monkey gone to heaven. It's got, here comes your man. It's got debaser. Yeah. It opens with debaser. 
Wave of Mutilation. I mean, two really, really popular hits. To me, this is the album that got me into the Pixies. And if you've ever heard of the Pixies but never picked up a Pixies album, this is the one to start with, I think. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. It's funny. I actually started with Trompe Le Monde, which is their last album. I think it's great. A lot of people acknowledge it's their weakest album from the the first time they broke up. But it was the first time I heard the Pixies. I still think that album's amazing. It left a huge impression on me. But then being able to go back to albums like Surfer Rosa and Doolittle, man, Doolittle is just the peak. It's like, and to think that was in 1989, like they were taking this music that was very like 60s inspired, but adding like a punk twist to it and then having this like atmospheric stuff too. And it's poppy, it's punky, it's loud. It's, you know, Kurt Cobain famously wrote Smells Like Teen Spirit as a deliberate Pixies ripoff. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Like that's how influential they they were. So yeah, I don't know what else I can say about that one. If you have any final word, we gotta we gotta move this a little <laughs> quickly here. <laughs> yeah, all I'll say is um, the first time I saw the Pixies several years ago, it was a do-little tour. Not during the tour, but they reprised the entire album. Right. Like they played every song in order. I mean, that just tells you how popular and great this album is. That's sick. That must have been awesome. Uh, it was an incredible show. One of the best shows I've ever been to. So, yeah. But yeah, let's move on. Alright, so the next one that was like a tie, a mutual choice was New Order Technique. Yeah. Now, I'm a huge New Order fan, a huge Joy Division fan. For those who don't know, Joy Division was a post-punk band in the late 70s, early 80s. They were only together for two years. They were only professionally playing music for six months. They have two albums, and their lead singer, Ian Curtis, he had epilepsy, he had a lot of depression and health issues. He tragically committed suicide at, I think he was 21 years old or 20 years old, like the day before Joy Division was supposed to go on a tour to America uh, they're yeah. from England. So so the remaining members of Joy Division, the, sur- the surviving members, decided to carry on. They describe it as they put Joy Division in a box and started something new. So they called it New Order. Their first album sounds a lot like Joy Division. And I actually really love their first album, Movement, because it sounds like a Joy Division album. A lot of the songs were the songs that were going to be Joy Division songs. Uh And you can really tell when you listen to it. But they ended up becoming one of the biggest and most influential acts in dance and electronic music. They released many beloved albums, but Technique came out in 1989. And the thing I love about this album, Rich, is as much as I love New Order, I'm not a huge fan of Bernard Sumner's lyrics. A lot of times he's very pitchy and off-key. And I think in the beginning he wasn't a very good singer. Yeah, they had trial and error with that, I remember. Right. So even on Movement, they hadn't decided on a lead singer. Peter Hook sings lead on, I think, two of the songs on that album. And they were really emulating Ian Curtis. So the the vocals are kind of just like low and droney. So you don't notice how... like kind of poor the singing is until the album after that. But anyway, one of the reasons I love Technique is because Sumner seems to have like found his groove on this album vocally. Mm-hmm. It opens with, um, he just comes on with a sexy, like, yo, much too young. And it's just like, <laughs> Ooh, yeah, that there it is, baby. You got it. Yeah. Like, it's just like, just a sexy growl. And it's like, Oh man, here we go. 
And uh, this album just goes from one track to the next. It's a perfect blend of rock music and dance music. And it's got the synths. It's got the dance beats. The lyrical content is really not super deep, but it's more sophisticated than what they had been doing so far. Many people regard this as their best album. And I think I do kind of a tie between that and Movement, their first album. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, just a great, great album. What do you think? Yeah, it's a great album. It's not like a lot of the albums that they've done. I'm I'm a big fan of Low Life and I've always been a big fan of that one. I don't really know how to describe it. I was reading up on it and uh, apparently they had taken to a studio that was out on some island and had a lot of discotheques around. And so they were walking the streets at night and uh, kind of hanging out in a lot of the clubs out there listening to this sort of like disco influenced music. A lot of people consider Chicago as the birthplace of house. And I was reading this article and they were saying, yeah, people talk about Chicago and Frankie Knuckles as sort of the beginning of house music. But have you ever listened to a New Order album? Right. You know, it's just got this really great groove, some great beats. And uh, yeah, I mean, you can really like hear that influence of where they started recording this album apparently they didn't finish it there because there was a lot of uh uh let's just say a little too much partying going on (laughs) while they were out there so they had to take it to another studio to finish up recording the album but um yeah this this album's not going to have any of the popular new order songs that you know like blue monday and uh you know several of the other songs that most people know and love but it is a fantastic album through and through from start to finish. Yeah, and I, I think that's one of the things I love about it is that whatever singles they took off of it, they're not their famous songs. Like no. There, there's no Bizarre Love Triangle. There's no Blue right. Monday. And you don't get distracted by that. Like there's there's a couple albums I'm going to mention where there's just like clear standout tracks or a clear smash hit single that can be distracting from the deeper cuts on an album. But with this one, it's just very consistent. Now, I just want to mention really quick, it's, it's kind of sad what ended up happening to the band. I actually don't know what the most recent developments are, but I know back in 2007, they broke up, quote unquote, and then in 2011, they got back together kind of secretly without Peter Hook. So they pulled the old, we're breaking the band up, but really we're kicking you out kind of thing. Yeah, and, uh Yeah, it's just weird and shady, but Peter Hook has written actually three books He wrote one about Joy Division, one about Factory Records, and one about New Order. And uh, I'm quite interested to read uh, these books because, dude, I went on such a deep New Order rabbit hole for this show. I listened to their whole discography multiple times, too, because I really wanted to make sure, like, is technique as good as I think it is kind of thing, like, compared to their whole body of work. And it totally is, but... It's on our turntable right now. We've been listening to it at night, cooking dinner and stuff. That's so awesome. (laughs) <laughs> but uh, I really want to read his books now because um, I watch so many interviews and I feel like, you know, I don't want to take a side, but like when you're seeing like Peter Hook talk about what's going on versus Bernard Sumner and the the other band members talk about what's going on. It's like I'm on Team Hook. I like I would let him babysit my kids over over these other people in the <laughs> band. Like I just I feel this trust like he's telling the truth more than they are kind of thing. Um, but he toured as Peter Hook and the Light. And what he was doing was playing Joy Division songs and New Order songs. And I don't know if you've seen any of the footage of this, but he sings very much like Ian Curtis. So when he's covering Joy Division songs, it's like, wow, if you close your eyes, like it would sound like what you would imagine Ian Curtis would sound like if he was still alive. It's kind of eerie. All right. Well, 
Let's do honorable mentions real quick, and then we'll go into our top five. So I have two honorable mentions that are very noteworthy to me because these are two acts, because one's a band, one's a solo artist. So two acts that I had heard of like for most of my life, but never listened to their music. You know how that happens a lot? So absolutely, giving myself this assignment, I was finally like, okay, here, I'm going <laughs> to listen to this person's like full album finally. The first one is a band XTC, which is so much in my wheelhouse. It's like, where have these guys been all my life? Like, <laughs> I wish I'd have given them, given them a chance a long time ago. The album is Oranges and Lemons. This album, I, as soon as it starts with the the Garden of Earthly Delights, I think is the opening track, I was like, oh my God, like it starts out really funky and then the pre-chorus is really smooth and then the chorus is really bouncy. It's just like this perfectly crafted pop song. And I was just like, oh my God, like I'm in for a treat with this album. And then the second song, same thing, uh, The Mayor of Simpleton, just a great like expertly crafted pop song with like silly lyrics about how the guy is stupid, but it doesn't matter because she, she's in love with him. Like one of those kind of songs, like he's singing about how dumb he is. And then the next song is uh, King for a Day, which is a song that I've actually heard before because it used to play over the Muzak stations when I worked in the grocery stores when I was a kid. So I was like, oh, that's them. The thing about the album is it's a little front loaded, like if it was a record, side A would be a lot better than side B. But I'm really excited now to go and hear more of XTC's music. Um, the other one is Kate Bush. She released an album in 1989 called The Sensual World. I've never listened to her music, and I'm excited to listen to more because she just has an amazing voice. The songs are very eclectic and weird and very like Peter Gabriel-ish and um, Pink Floyd-ish. And she just has this very interesting vocal delivery that I can hear her influence in a lot of the stuff that I listen to now. So that was pretty cool. My last honorable mention is, have you ever heard of the band Beat Happening? No, I haven't. Okay, so they were from the Seattle area. They were actually from Olympia, Washington. And if you've ever heard of K Records, which was started by Calvin Johnson, who is in Beat Happening, he's the lead singer from Beat Happening. This was one of Kurt Cobain's idols, basically. Kurt Cobain's only tattoo was a K Records logo. So the band Beat Happening, I remember when I heard them when I was younger, when I started playing music, it was to play Nirvana songs. But we knew we couldn't ever sound like Nirvana because we weren't as good as them. Not that they were like virtuosos, but we couldn't play drums like Dave Grohl. I couldn't play guitar and scream like Kurt Cobain, no matter how much I tried. But Beat Happening, their style is like kind of this just campfire. They have one guitar, like a two-piece drum set, no bass player. And Calvin Johnson sings in this like really low amazingly deep voice and it's some of the most unique music you'll ever hear and they released an album called black candy in 1989 again it's kind of known as their best album a lot of people including myself kind of think that that's their peak so that's my last honorable mention i, I don't want to I'm going on and on and on here. <laughs> <laughs> the way you're talking about that kind of campfire sound and Kurt Cobain, I know that Kurt was really into the Vaselines yeah. as well, which is another great band that I really love. Yeah. Well, I've got two honorable mentions. One, this is one of my wife's favorite albums, and that is Sonic Temple by The Cult. Oh, cool, cool. Yeah, it's, it's a really, really awesome album. Probably most famous for their songs Firewoman and Sweet Soul Sister, which were uh, radio hits. But uh, yeah, man, that entire album's 
really, really good. So, uh, yeah, I would say pick that up if you can. And then the other honorable mention you mentioned earlier, 1989, Tim Burton's Batman. That soundtrack by Prince is phenomenal. Yes, so very that good. That is definitely one to pick up. And if you haven't seen his performances on Saturday Night Live for that album, definitely worth checking out too on the old YouTubes if you can find it. That's awesome. I was going to mention that. I just crossed it off my list. I just want to say <laughs> that when Prince passed away, there were so many articles on the Batman soundtrack because people were writing oh, you know, Batman is secretly a really good Prince album. And it's like, dude, I knew that. Party Man is yeah. a freaking banger, dude. Yeah. Like, yeah, that man. album is awesome. <laughs> <laughs> so, all right. Very cool. All right. Let's get into it. Top five. Um, you want to go first or you want me to go first with my number five? Uh, it doesn't matter, man. Mine are in no particular order, actually, but yeah. I just picked five albums. Yeah, man, go ahead. Mine are kind of similar. All right, I'm going to go with Faith No More, The Real Thing. Oh, yeah. Uh, this album, I grew up listening to Aerosmith and Pink Floyd with my dad's vinyl records. He had many vinyl records. I listened to some Led Zeppelin, too, but it was all classic rock stuff. I still listen to Pink Floyd to this day, not so much Aerosmith, but those were my favorite bands when I was like a young kid, like literally like eight or nine years old. I remember when the single Epic was big, this album came out, my dad picked it up and man, the first song from Out of Nowhere just hits you like a sledgehammer. It's really fast, really heavy. And the whole album is just a funky, punky metal mixture. And it's it's just very heavy, very interesting. And it's the first time I, I ever heard and started my love affair with the legendary Mike Patton. So uh, Mike Patton, uh, some people know him from Mr. Bungle. Some people know Tomahawk and Phantom Moss. And he's in like 70 different bands. And he does a lot of voices for video games. The guy's a legend, like I said. So that was my first exposure to him. So Faith No More, The Real Thing. All right. My first pick is not going to be a popular pick for Morrissey. But uh, my first pick is Disintegration by The Cure. I know uh, Morrissey really hates Robert Smith, so uh, they had an ongoing feuding battle that I still think continues to this day. But I've always been a big fan of The Cure. Growing up in the 80s, you know, you'd catch a few songs on the radio. But when I got into college my senior year, I lived with this guy who was really into The Smiths, really into The Cure, you know, this kind of mopey new wave stuff. I just love this album. It's got some of the better um, hits on it. Pictures of You, Love Song, Fascination Street, Lullaby, you know, just to name a few of the more popular songs that are on that album. So, yeah, man, that's uh, my number one pick there. Great, man. That came so close to making my list. It's not my <laughs> list. I listened to it 20 times in the past couple of weeks. I love, 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 love that album as well. So I'm really glad it made it on your list because it just barely got eked out on my list. <laughs> I understand. So I got something a little bit similar from my next pick, which is The Wedding Present. Their album Bizarro came out in 1989. Do you know of The Wedding Present? I do not. I'm not familiar with this band. Okay. I think you would love them. I think you would love this album. You mentioned The Smiths, and I was trying to get my friend Corey to listen to this album. And I said, dude, they sound like The Smiths with a lot of grit. Like, they sound like The Smiths with distortion. That's a little bit of a simplification of what they are. 
but they're like this indie band with a lot of teeth, you know what I mean? And uh, mm-hmm. the singer has this really deep, like throaty voice. He just has these kind of cynical, biting lyrics and really like kind of proto emo style lyrics, like stuff you would hear later in like Taking Back Sunday songs, you know what I mean? Like that mm-hmm. style of the girls cheating on you and you're down about it kind of dumb <laughs> but it's just in really good uh prose kind of so wedding present bizarro check it out all right cool uh my number two pick to me this is like a very very classic rock and roll album and uh even though tom petty's damn the torpedoes is probably my favorite petty album full moon fever is a close tie or second i love this album when i was a kid growing up uh few tracks that are on there that most people know free falling i won't back down you're so bad and then uh running down a dream which is one of the best like animated rock videos ever if you've never seen it yeah. take some acid and watch that one oh. just kidding um, <laughs> but uh yeah man um I, I love that album. I've always been a Tom Petty supporter. Just love his voice. Love everything about him. Just seems like such a cool guy. And uh, R.I.P. Uh, definitely one of those guys that went too soon. Yeah, he's definitely greatly missed. And since that was on my list as well, I'll just put in my two cents as I cross it off. Dude, this album is, again, just like a perfect album that I've carried with me forward from my childhood. And I remember... This is kind of stupid and embarrassing, but when my sister and I were younger and we had our first VHS camcorder, you know, the big ones that you put the big standard VHS. (laughs) Right, exactly. (laughs) So on the weekends, on like a Saturday afternoon or something, my dad would just put on music and we would dance around for him to take videos of us. He would just put on Tom Petty or Aerosmith or something, and we would just dance around like idiots, and he would show the video, because this was new technology, like, oh, look at this. Like, And I remember Tom Petty, Full Moon Fever, was one of the albums that we listened to constantly, and it was just, it's so good. I listened to it today, and... You know, a lot of people wrote about it being front-loaded, but I love every single song on it, especially towards the end. There's a song called Zombie Zoo, which is really funny. The lyrics are about whether you want to say like goth kids or punk rockers. Like, I remember there's a lyric in there that says, you shaved off all your hair, you look like Boris Karloff and you don't even care. And I remember asking my mother who Boris Karloff was. <laughs> so it like explained the song to me, you know, it was, it's, it's just great. Everything about it is great. So good choice on that one. Yeah, and let me just throw this out there. If uh, any of our listeners find that on vinyl and want to send it my way, that would be primo awesome. Because in 1989, there wasn't a lot of vinyl still being pressed at that point. Is that true? Yeah, yeah, there are copies, but it is a pricey one. So, uh, yeah, if you ever run across it, let me know. Wow, that's weird. I don't want to get too much on a divergent rabbit hole, but was it just that CD technology was so up and coming that people were like, oh, to heck with vinyl. Like, we've got cassettes, we're getting CDs. Like, it was just kind of... Yeah, the presses had pretty much, you know, almost shut down, you know, around that time. And CD technology and then, um, you know, cassettes as well. So they just weren't pressing a whole lot of it. And uh, 1989, that's that's late 80s, you know. Right. Uh, So um, about that time, it's, you know, tough to find some vinyl. Original vinyl, that is, you know, I know there's, you know, repressings and things like that out there. I don't think they've repressed Full Moon Fever yet, though. I could be wrong. Cool. All right. What's your next pick? 
All right, my next pick is a band that I have really been getting into in the last few years. I wanted to take my kids to see them so bad this summer, but we had a conflict, and that's the B-52s. I love the Athens sound, which the B-52s are an incredible generator of, and there's no other band in the world that sounds like the B-52s, you know, right. and uh, their album Cosmic Thing, uh, which, you know, had hits Love Shack and Rome on it is just an incredible album. I actually own all their albums on vinyl except Cosmic Thing, which is sort of the irony. Another album that's tough to find, again, just because, you know, of the year. So, uh, you know, you may hear me say that a few times during the show. Uh, I wish I owned this one on vinyl, but I don't. But, uh, yeah, I love uh, Fred's voice and uh, B-52s, man. You just can't beat that sound. Yeah, I listened to this album a couple of times, I'm not quite a fan of Fred Schneider singing, but I understand like kind of the novelty of it, the call and response thing. I think the two part female vocal harmonies are just incredible on this album. And I love the song Rome yeah. probably the most because it doesn't have any Fred singing on it. And it's just the two women just going at it. And it's amazing and powerful. Yeah, it took me a while to get used to his voice, you know. It was one of those voices that was really grating to me, like, the first few times that I heard it. I was never a big fan of Love Shack, just because every wedding you go to, you know, <laughs> right. you're going to hear that song. You know, it gets played over and over, but his voice has just kind of grown on me, and just what they're trying to do is just so original and so hip and just so cool. And, you know, nobody's ever done that, and, uh, yeah, I just love it. Yeah. I'm with it. That's what I meant when I was saying earlier, like that a real smash hit on an album can kind of drown out the rest of an album. And I was specifically, yeah. I had Love Shack in mind uh, when I was making that statement. But yeah, moving moving along to my next, I got two left here. So let's go with a pop album. I had a couple choices here. Rhythm Nation 1814 came out this year, but well, there's some really great songs on it, but the production is kind of dated. Uh, Debbie Gibson's Electric Youth came out this year. Now, she's noteworthy. You can't really write her off as just like a mall pop singer. She wrote and produced her first album and then her second album, Electric Youth. She wrote all the songs and produced about half of them, which is kind of amazing because she was 16 years old at the time. Yeah. So uh, really impressive. And I remember Electric Youth as a, a very... Um, I have a lot of nostalgia for that song because I remember thinking it sounded really cool when I was a kid. But I'm going to have to go with Like a Prayer by Madonna. I think this is probably, you know, she came out with her self-titled album, which is just an amazing, like cutting edge, incredible achievement in pop and dance music. And then Like a Virgin, which is, I think that's a masterpiece. True Blue was the next one. Great album. Yeah. Like a Prayer is kind of the last album. Totally agree. I know what you're going to say. <laughs> like it's the last. <laughs> the last good Madonna. Right. Album. Well, it's the last yeah. like Madonna album that's an album. I think. Um, yeah. It starts out with Like a Prayer, which is just an incredible. I could listen to that song on repeat a thousand times in a row. It just has such a, you know, the chorus, the literal chorus, not the chorus of the song, but there's like choral singing in, in like a choir is the word I'm looking for. And um, just the way it crescendos into the chorus of the song. And uh, I remember at the time the controversy and the stupidity of like, oh, she dyed her hair brown. Like, what a thing. And then like the music video was very controversial because there were like burning yeah. crosses in it. She lost an endorsement deal with Pepsi. But now just listening to the album as music, it's so good. Like 
this has express yourself on it. It has cherish, which is one of my favorite like celebration of love songs. You know, there's three types of love songs. There's lost love, longing for love and celebration of love. And the majority of love songs are lost love and longing for love, but a good celebration of love song, they're few and far between, but this is one of the best ones. Just an aside, I think uh, Mint Car is probably my other favorite celebration <laughs> yeah, of love song. Um, and the other thing that's noteworthy about this album is that Prince, he had a hand in it. He played a lot of guitar on it. He co-wrote and performed one of the songs. I think it's called Love Song on this album. That's probably one of my least favorite songs on the album. But if you like Prince, it sounds like a Prince song with Madonna kind of singing with him on it. So <laughs> You can't go wrong there. Right, right. My number four pick is an album that's very, very dear to my heart. I was a big hairband guy back in the 80s. Yeah. <laughs> maybe to the surprise of some, maybe not. First show I ever went to was Death Leopard in Queensryche. My cousin, uh, she was older than me and she used to drive me to school every day in her 19, I think, 78 Camaro. <laughs> Man. And uh, we would listen to some crazy stuff. One of those was uh, Repeat Offender by Richard Marks, which came out in 1989. But most of the time we were listening to hair bands and uh, Motley Crue's Dr. Feelgood I knew it. was for sure <laughs> one of the top albums of all time for us. Just to list off some of the hits on that album, it's a smorgasbord of hits and one of those albums <laughs> you can just listen to all the way through. The self-titled Dr. Feelgood, Kickstart My Heart, uh, which was about Nikki Six basically dying and coming back to life. Right. Without You, Same Old Situation, and Girl Don't Go Away Mad. Man, you can't beat that album. It's so great. Love Dr. Feelgood. That's cool. I did listen to it. I didn't spend tons of time with it because I knew you were going to have it on your list. But uh, yeah, I listened to it because I, you know, this isn't my type of music. Let me let me check it out. And, uh, you know, I enjoyed it. I, I don't know. I think I have a fine line with what I can tolerate as far as that kind of hair metal stuff. You know, I'm from New Jersey, so... Bon Jovi was very popular when I was growing up, but I can't listen to Bon Jovi nowadays. Like I sincerely <laughs> can't enjoy it at all. So I love Runaway. That's a great song. Yeah. I still think I could probably tolerate You Give Love a Bad Name. That was like my favorite song when I was a real little kid. You know what I mean? Yeah, I thought yeah, it was so yeah. badass. When the music drops out and it's just the drums. And I remember my cousin saying, oh, I hate when they do that in songs. And I was like, no, oh, that's the best part. Like, that's when you get up and sing when it's just the drums, you know, like, <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that's so funny. But yeah, that I don't know the hair metal thing. And it's really hit and miss for me, but I'm so glad that, you know, I knew that was going to be on your list. It's so awesome to hear you talk about it. So, all right, I'll go to my number one. And like you, I didn't, I did not technically have mine ranked out, but here we go. I think if you put a gun to my head, this would be my choice anyway. So here it is. It's Paul's Boutique by the Beastie Boys. Yeah, I figured that would be on your list. Yeah. So the, man, this album is incredible. It so so the Beastie Boys come out at the time. They make License to Ill, their debut album. It has uh, Fight for Your Right to Party. They're kind of this goofy, like, frat boy, like, crazy rock, rap mixture, and they were very popular, and they actually, they opened for Madonna back then in 1983 or 4, I think it was. And man, if I could go in a time machine and go to any concert, it would probably be that one. <laughs> that would have been awesome. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Drinking some Brass Monkey. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> 
so anyway, they become hugely popular and then they follow up that album with Paul's Boutique and it was a commercial flop and people hated it. It's just this smorgasbord. It's really like one of the first mashup albums. It's almost nothing but samples. And there's so many pop culture references and just sounds from movies. And not just like disco. Like a lot of rappers sampled disco and, you know, R&B back in the early days of hip hop. But Paul's Boutique has samples from like Johnny Cash and the Ramones and just all this amazing stuff. And you get these three guys just rapping against each other. The the lyrics are so multi-leveled. It's just such a deep album sonically. There's so much stuff going on. And uh, again, amazing from start to finish. You're not going to skip any of the songs. I could just listen to it all day, every day. It's a masterpiece. I've said this before. It's the pet sounds of hip hop. And I love it. My favorite album to come out in 1989, maybe tied with Doolittle. So there you go. And a lot of people don't know the Beastie Boys played instruments. I mean, they were very talented. They weren't just rappers like a lot of people think they were. And I think there's a good bit of it comes out in uh, Paul's Boutique. Yeah, it's true. They came up in the New York hardcore scene. They were actually, they started as a hardcore band. There's one funny thing I read in a book that they didn't have driver's licenses. So Thurston Moore of Sonic Youth used to drive them to a lot of their shows just because he liked their band so much. Uh, so That's I always funny. thought that was really funny. They did do some of their own instrumentation on Paul's Boutique. They really went back to it with Check Your Head. That was more like a full band album. Yeah, uh, I believe that was the next album to come out. But but yeah, they're very talented musicians uh, in their own right, not just MCs. All right, man. My last pick uh, may not be so surprising that those know me. Like I really like classic rap music. I'm a huge fan. And probably now, more than ever, have sort of self-recognized my sort of man crush on LL Cool J. And uh, (laughs) Walking with a Panther Man is one of the best LL Cool J albums ever. That is not what I thought you were going to say. But (laughs) yeah, now this album is not on Spotify, so I did not have a chance to listen to it. But tell me all about it. Oh, man, it is so just smooth, just typical LL. I mean, I I loved radio and I loved Bad. Bad was just like really tough. Radio was that streets album, you know. But then Walking with a Panther was that. That was where LL was just like, you know, living up to his name, Ladies Love Cool James, where he was just busting it out with I'm That Type of Guy, Going Back to Cali, and Jiggling Baby. Those were like the big tracks on that album. Just classic, smooth LL Cool J to get your lady in the mood. Great stuff. And, you know, I had all the ladies back in 89 at 12 years old. <laughs> <laughs> That's so awesome. Well, like I said, I want to wrap this up with a quick flyover of the rest of the notable releases. Now, what I thought you were going to say when you were in, when you mentioned being into old school hip hop, De La Soul, Three Feet High and Rising yes. came out in I thought you were going to pick that one, yeah. Well, as much as I love that album, to me on a personal level, it, it's not even close to Paul's Boutique. So I figured I would pick mm-hmm. one of the two as far as a rap album. So It's a good album, though. Absolutely amazing. Um, so here we go. We got Fugazi's first album, 13 Songs, which is actually yep. a compilation of a couple different things. But most people just accept that as their first album. Uh, yep. Have that on vinyl. My wife is a huge Fugazi fan and actually introduced me to them. That's awesome. 
So one of the things about 1989 that's really cool is that the grunge music had not burst into the mainstream, but a lot of these guys were starting to make their albums. It was just in the underground still. So for example, Nirvana's debut album, Bleach, came out in 1989. Soundgarden's Louder Than Love and Mudhoney's Self-Titled, which was actually their second album, but pretty good album. Also, you had a lot of industrial and house and techno kind of blending Ministry came out with an album, Pop Will Eat Itself, which is another band that I was listening to for the first time. Very interesting. Um, But probably most notably and most popular, Nine Inch Nails' Pretty Hate Machine came out in 1989. Uh, How about some California punk? We had Operation Ivy. Their one and only album, Energy, came out in 1989. And Green Day released their debut EP, 1000 Hours, in 1989. Lou Reed, New York, probably his second most popular album after Transformer. Uh, The Red Hot Chili Peppers' Mother's Milk came out in 89. Tears for Fears, Seeds of Love. Uh, Nina Cherry, Raw Like Sushi. I really like this album because it's a great mixture of just hip-hop, R&B, pop, and uh, it has the song Buffalo Stance, which has been often often (laughs) imitated, never duplicated. Just a great song. Uh, Queen Latifah, All Hail the Queen. To round out the rap and hip-hop, Two Live Crew released Nasty As They Wanna Be. Yeah, which is not good. I mean, I wouldn't recommend going and listening to it. (laughs) Yeah, it's pretty vile. um, It lives up to its title, the album title. It is nasty. It was legally declared an obscenity by the United States government. So that was a a landmark accomplishment, I guess. Um, (laughs) um, Just a couple more. We had Technotronic, Pump Up the Jam, Jesus and Mary Chain, Automatic, Elvis Costello, Spike, which is not his best album, but it it has Veronica on it. It's okay. And the last two, people love them, but I found them to be a little bit overrated. One is the Stone Roses debut album. I listened to it. Just sounds a little dated. I could see that maybe it it had an impact at the time, but I don't know. Uh, the other one's Galaxy Five Hundred on Fire. Now, you and me, Rich, we've talked about shoegaze music in the past, and and you mentioned quite astutely that there's a little bit of a threshold with shoegaze, like if the energy level is too low that you might just check out. And that's where I was with this galaxy 500 album. It's just so slow and droning that I couldn't get into it, but people seem to love it. So good for them and good for that album. Whoo, man, dude, this has been super fun. I hope the listeners really like this and I hope we can do it again. Maybe if we do it again, we could do it as like a side episode. I know some people are going to be groaning that this took too long, but I was so excited to do this, Rich. I can't even tell you. I haven't, I haven't done this much prep work for an episode, whether it was the game or not, like if it was a side topic or the game itself, I can't remember doing so much prep and research. Dude, this was homework yeah. the episode. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I, I really appreciate the opportunity and I'm glad you, you know, agreed to come along on this uh, project with me. So I had so much fun just listening to old favorites and discovering new stuff. I really hope we can do this again sometime. And I know we're running long, but did you have a favorite song from 89? Dude, it's so hard to pick. I mean, I thought about it. There were a lot of great singles. Buffalo Stance is an incredible song. Like a Prayer is an incredible song. I mean, I, it would have to be a multiple way tie between those and probably like Head Like a Hole by Nine Inch Nails. That song is ridiculous. Um, What about you? 
Yeah, well, one album that we didn't mention uh, that came out was a self-titled album by Love and Rockets, and it has probably my favorite song from 1989, So Alive. I, I love that song, man. It's so catchy and just just so epic. And you know, I've always been a big fan of new wave stuff. And, uh, you know, this is sort of a blend of that and rock and roll and just sort of feels like the end of an era of that type of music and uh, just kind of rounds out the 80s really nicely. Yeah, I, th- I think I'm familiar with that song. That, that album was on my list. I didn't have a chance to get to it, but I'm going to have to go and check out that track. Yeah, do that. People had recommended this show to me called Black Mirror that a lot of our listeners might be familiar with, and it's on Netflix here in the U.S. The problem with me is I I don't like watching TV, and I hate to sound like a, a hipster. And I, when I've told people that, they just roll their eyes and and call me a douchebag. But like I really try not to watch TV shows, you know. But the beautiful thing about Black Mirror is that the episodes are standalone; they're not connected. So you can literally just try one out and see if you like it. Mm-hmm. I'd equate it to something like the Twilight Zone. Yes. I think that's what it gets compared to a lot. I'm a huge Twilight Zone fan. Yes, it gets compared to Twilight Zone a lot. It also made me think of, do you remember uh, the show Amazing Stories from the late 80s? Yes. One of those like kind of creepy shows yes. <laughs> used to come on and scare the hell out of us as kids. Exactly. Yeah. That, that was a great one, too. So yeah, I finally got into it, and the reason people were telling me that I would like it is because Black Mirror is a work of speculative fiction. And what speculative fiction is, it's kind of a subset of science fiction, or some people look at it as science fiction is a subset of speculative fiction. And so it depends on how you look at it. But basically, this was a genre umbrella that some science fiction writers came up with. Margaret Atwood said famously, I'm not writing about space aliens and giant octopuses. This isn't science fiction. Like, so she kind of adopted the moniker for her book, Orcs and Crake, which is one of the things I want to talk about. This is probably my favorite Margaret Atwood book. It's just about future technology in a world of consumerism. And there's a lot of commentary on like the pharmaceutical industries and it's post-apocalyptic and it's just, it's really good. But unfortunately it's part of a trilogy called the Mad Adam trilogy. And I read the second book called the year of the flood and I didn't like it at all. And I read half of the third book called Mad Adam and I was having such a bad time with it that I just stopped reading it. But I've read Oryx and Craig twice So I would highly recommend that as a work of speculative fiction. The other one, real quick, there's a short story collection called The Thing About Great White Sharks. It's a collection of short stories by Rebecca Adams Wright. 
it starts off with a story called Sheila. And although I'm not a short story expert, Sheila is my favorite short story ever. I've read it like 17 times. I've made all my friends read it. I made my wife read it. It's so amazing. And the good thing about this book is I don't know if this is still true, but when I first got my Kindle, which was not a long time ago, if you have a Prime account, this is included with your Prime Kindle thing, if that is even still a thing. So I first read it digitally for free, and I liked it so much that I bought a copy of the physical book so I could pass it around to my friends. So Sheila is about a world where mechanical pets have become the norm, and it immediately makes you start thinking about what a world would be like with very realistic robotic pets. Like, where would we be? What would the regular animals be doing? Like, all these things get your wheels turning immediately. And she lays down this really nice character development. And again, this story is 15 pages long. This is what, like, a really good short story does. It gives you everything you would expect in a novel, but in a much more condensed form. The story, it really tugs at your heartstrings. I'll just leave it there. Just read this Read this story. It's called, it's called <laughs> Sheila by Rebecca Adams Wright. It's incredible. All right, so let's move on to Black Mirror. I just want to plug my article that I put up a couple days ago. for It was a review of the Black Mirror episode playtest, which I think will appeal to video gamers. It's about a gentleman who's kind of traveling abroad, and he gets stranded in an area of England, and he needs to do a little gig work per se to kind of get money to, to go home. So he ends up doing this testing of like this augmented virtual reality game and it it's a horror game and things just kind of go out of control. And that's kind of the theme of most of Black Mirror's episodes is how technology yeah. seeps out of control, you know, in unexpected ways. So this is kind of cool. We have like bonus listener responses because I tweeted out that article and I said, what are your favorite Black Mirror episodes? And also comments on the article itself. So Zofar53, his favorite episode is San Junipero. Engineer Mike said White Bear and at Civil Warfare 101 on Twitter, he mentioned a, an episode called Hated in the Nation, which is actually the length of a film. It's about an hour and 45 minutes long and it's it's really good. So my top three episodes would be any two episodes that aren't White Bear. And then my number one episode is White Bear. Like, I think White Bear is head and shoulders above any of these other episodes. The show itself is good. Like, it's it's not very good. It's not mind-blowing. Like, Yeah, can be hit or miss, I think. A little hit or miss. I didn't see any episodes that I was like, ew, like, that was a complete waste of my friggin' time. Like, what were they thinking? Mm-hmm. Like... Luckily, none of the episodes hit me like that. But White Bear, man, that shook me. And I ended up watching it again because I wanted to make sure, like, is this episode actually really good or was I just shocked by what I saw and it left an impression on me? But no, I watched it again and it's really good. And I got to shout out the main actress, and I don't know if I'm pronouncing this right, Lenora Critchlow, who plays the main character, who is this woman who wakes up in this house, she's strapped to this chair, and she has complete amnesia. There's a bottle of pills in front of her, and she gets out of the chair and gets out of the house, and she realizes that there are people watching her with their phones. They're not coming near her, they're just like observing her, and it's very creepy and scary, and 
man, this actress, she does an amazing job of portraying confusion and just this angst of being in an unknown situation. She's literally saying to people, I don't know who I am. Like, help me. What What is going on? And then by the end, she portrays physical agony in a way I haven't seen in a very long time. I had you watch this. I don't want to talk too much about it. I don't really want to spoil anything, but... No, no, no. What did you think, man? Man, this is one of those things that you'll come away from just not knowing how to feel. You're just conflicted inside when this episode ends. That's all I'll say. I don't want to give anything away. It's a must-watch. Uh, my wife and I talked about it for days awesome. after we watched it. It really kind of challenges your beliefs sometimes and the way you feel about certain, let's say, uh, political ideologies and technology, <laughs> of course. So, yeah, definitely highly recommended episode. And, uh, you know, you and I can talk off mic about it at some point. <laughs> yeah, for sure. So if anybody has read or watched anything that you would think is a good work of speculative fiction, that's the kind of stuff I've freaking love. I want to see and read stuff that is grounded in current technology, but is speculating of how that technology can get out of control. There are a lot of episodes in Black Mirror that deal with social media, that deal with consciousness and being able to put your consciousness into a computer. This is something that I've read a lot about. I don't know if you've ever read uh, Ray Kurzweil's book, The Singularity is Near. Very interesting book about future technology. But yeah, if you got any recommendations, tweet them at me at RFG Playcast. I really want to delve deeper into this genre. Uh, so yeah, again, thanks for listening. So I got one more. <laughs> I got one more topic. <laughs> so here's a funny story. And this is a story with a moral. And uh, I hope I can demonstrate what not to do in this social media world of ours that we were just kind of discussing. So I mentioned before the Reset Gaming Podcast because it's one of my favorite podcasts and they're short episodes. There's a male and a female voice. It's Michael and Tegan down in Australia. Just an amazing show, a funny show. They're good natured. They joke a lot. They curse and they shit on games they don't like. They praise games they love. It's, it's great. One of the things that I love that they do is listener responses. They post on social media every week before they record a topic and they want people's picks for what's your favorite this type of game or, you know, what's the first game you own that you paid for with your own money? Just stupid topics like that, you know? So I've gotten my name mentioned a couple times. So three episodes back, they said, what's your favorite demo? So I talked about the Metal Gear Solid demo that was on the PlayStation disc that came with my PlayStation. I've written about it on the blog before, so y'all might know about it. And I know that Michael likes Metal Gear Solid, so he got all excited when he was talking about it. On the next episode, I got a little bit smarter because they said, what's your favorite indie game? So I went on RFG Playcast Twitter, because previously to this point, I had used my personal Instagram, which is at Sean Gray. When they asked, what's your favorite indie game? I went at RFG Playcast and I said, we loved Night School Studios Oxenfree and I tagged Night School in it. So I thought that's pretty cool because then on the show, they mentioned at RFG Playcast, I figured what a great way to get our name out there. So can you guess what I did in the most recent episode? What did you do? So I did both. I figured I'm going to double dip. There's no way they're going to know that 
Sean Gray on Instagram is the same thing as at RFG Playcast on Twitter, right? So I got greedy. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, the story doesn't end with them finding me out or anything, but I felt really, really bad because when they started this episode, and this almost never happens, they said, we got so many responses for this question, we couldn't answer them all. So we're sorry for anybody we left out. And I was like, oh my God, like if they read both my responses, I'll feel so bad because I double dip. I theoretically pushed somebody out. (laughs) You really feel bad about that? Yeah, I feel a little bad. (laughs) (laughs) And I crafted two really good responses. Like I purposely played to what Michael likes and I accidentally played to what Tegan likes because the question was, what is a game you stayed up all night to play? So I went back to the well with Metal Gear Solid on one of the accounts, and I said I stayed up all night playing Metal Gear Solid 2 because you could do anything. And I specifically mentioned making Raiden slip on bird sh**. And he got a kick out of that. He was saying, oh, I had to mention this because, you know, in that game you can make him slip on bird sh**. So it was great. Great response. And then on Instagram, I talked about uh, civilizations, Civ 1 and playing it with my dad and staying up all night. And then when Civ Revolution came out a couple of years ago, playing that all night as an adult. And that was one of Tegan's choices in her top three. So I was like, oh, yeah, I like picked a good one. So anyway, the moral of the story is besides just shouting out Reset again, because they're one of my favorite podcasts and they're amazing people, is don't double dip because... If you're greedy, you might push someone else out and then you'll feel bad. So I'm not going to do that again. I'm just going to respond on Twitter, try and get an RFG Playcast out there. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Don't be a double dip in <laughs> with remorse. That's right. Sean. <laughs> so moving right along in the news, I just wanted to talk about one thing kind of exciting that's happening over at RF Generation. As we've mentioned before, our buddy Josh Metalfro is doing this shmup playthrough group on the site and I just wanted to mention in September they are playing a free game called Warning Forever. I think a lot of the members have compared it to something like Geometry Wars which I own copies of but haven't gotten to play that yet so I may have to jump in on this pick. But anyway the one thing that I wanted to talk about and what's so exciting is not just that pick but that our buddy Josh and Addicted, who we've had on the show before, have started a companion piece to their Schmuck Club, and they have done a podcast. And they've already put out two episodes, one on R-Type and the other on Gradius. And the name of the show is the Shoot the Core cast. So definitely check that out. It's new. These guys know their They know exactly what they're talking about as far as shmups are concerned. We did that shmup competition one December, Sean, and I was like, how in the world are we going to talk about shoot 'em up games for this long? Because gameplay's limited, there's no you know real story to these mm-hmm. things, but man, these guys, hour and a half long on each one, and it is phenomenal. You will not get bored listening to this show. It's very, very tight, and they bring in some history. Really, really good show. Have you listened to it yet? Haven't had a chance yet, but I am definitely going to. Yeah, man, definitely check that out. All right, so let's go ahead and roll on in the pickups. Sean, do you want to go first? Very good. I just have one simply. Uh, I got to shout out Steven Eider on Twitter because one day he just tweeted, ooh, what are the new releases tomorrow? Code of Princess EX, meh, not interested. Like that kind of tweet. And I said, dude, have you ever played the original? And he said, 
Yeah, I didn't like it. Well, I said, thanks for the heads up. That's one of my favorite games ever. So, <laughs> <laughs> Joke's on you. <laughs> I actually saw that, and because it was the day before it came out, Amazon was still doing the pre-order bonus. It technically was a pre-order, so I got my 20% discount, and uh, that's Code of Princess EX on the Switch. Have you ever played this game, Rich, the 3DS original? No, I have not. I think you would really love it. If you like Guardian Heroes on the Sega Saturn, it had a lot of the developers of that game on the development team of Code of Princess. It's just a side-scrolling beat-em-up RPG, but with weapons. And you play as a female protagonist, which I love, of course. And she has a sword that is like, you know, if she's five foot tall the sword is seven feet long it's just huge (laughs) and the animations of her like swinging it it has a very satisfying thing it's almost like um like a chun li high kick where it feels like it has multiple impacts like as you swing the sword you can hear like you know like as it's like slicing through the enemy and it's 2d sprite based so It's just a really cool game. I remember being really addicted to it. And it's one of those things like if you can't beat a level, you just go back and grind a little. And the grinding is very fun. So then you just go back into the level you couldn't beat. Very, very cool game. I can't wait to play it again on the Switch. Very cool, man. Well, I had some really interesting pickups this month. One of the cool things is these were pickups from people I've recently met online and through actually Twitter. And then also some of our friends of the show and people who've been on our show before did some trades with me. Uh, The first, I want to give a shout out to Atari Spot. Great Twitter account. Really worth following if you're an Atari 2600 fanatic like I am. Huge collector. And uh, he's kind of got me into these 2600 Sears variants. And if you don't know, I really love Atari artwork. And a lot of the Sears copies of the 2600 cartridges were just bland and just plain with just like numbers and text on them. But then you had what was called these picture carts by Sears. And while some of them were the same pictures that were on the original Atari cart, just with a kind of a Sears Telegames logo on them, some of them, they use completely different artwork. And it's that same fantastic Atari artwork that, you know, we're so accustomed to and is kid, you know, I I would look at a game and had to use my imagination, obviously. This is what, you know, sparked my imagination, this type of artwork on these carts. And I did a big buy from him and did some trading with him. I sent him some manuals that I had to kind of knock the price down. But yeah, he hooked me up with a ton of these Sears label carts and also a copy of Adventure that has no controller designation on it. Toward the later end of the Atari's life, they started just releasing the carts with no controller designation on it as far as whether it was joystick or paddle, uh, just because they they started screwing them up so much. They just decided just to take it off the cartridge completely or cover it up with like a black piece of tape, uh, which is kind of funny. And you actually find those carts out in the wild sometimes. So uh, yeah, uh, definitely follow Atari Spot on Twitter and uh, just wanted to give him a quick shout out. A game that I picked up recently also that I've been looking for for a long time. There are not many Famicom carts that I still want, but I did pick up a copy of Contra finally for the Famicom. Got this on eBay for a good price. Been wanting to pull the trigger and been following uh, that search for years. From my understanding, the music's different in this game and it has a few other little variations too. As you know, Contra is one of my favorite games that I can just run through, you know, no death. And so this is one that I had to have for my Famicom. Famicom collection. 
My next pickup is that I did a trade with our buddy Travis. Sean, do you remember on the last show where he was talking about having a copy of Klonoa 2? Yes, I do. Uh, well, uh, it is now in my collection. I actually made that trade that we were talking about. I traded him a copy of Chaos Field that I had picked up and I had an extra copy of. And I thought that was a good trade, you know, pretty fair as far as value is concerned. Yeah, I agree completely. Two great games. And if you wanted yours and you wanted his, that's an awesome trade. Yeah, it was really cool. So, uh, yeah, I was happy to do that. And then the other trade that I had was with our buddy Disposed Hero. I had been eyeballing Sola Robo for DS that he had. I asked him about it several months ago and just kind of passed on it because of the price. It was a good price, of course. You know, you always sell stuff at great prices to us, but it's just kind of like, eh, I don't know if I want it that much. So he had the wish list of games that he wanted. So I decided, hey, I'm just going to go shopping for this guy. And so I probably sent him like seven or eight. PS2 games that he was looking for. And so, you know, I got to pick up a lot of like cheap games cumulatively and send it over to him for a nice trade to get something that I wanted and to help him out as well. I probably went over my limit as far as how much I bought. And it probably, if I would have paid cash for the game, I would have probably saved money. But Steven has been so awesome to not only myself, but to you in the past that uh, I just decided just to throw in a little bit extra, you know, for him. So uh, really happy about that. Yeah, that's awesome. I know he's been going hard on the PS2 and I completely support that. And I'm <laughs> so you glad you could supply him <laughs> with some of the quality titles he was looking for. Absolutely. It was cool. And I really appreciate that trade. Another game I picked up, and I'm sure you saw this on Twitter. We'd been talking about Doom 64 and I just happened to be out at one of my favorite stores. They had it for a great price. So I said, you know what? I'm just going to go ahead and grab that. I added it to my collection of about 15 64 carts and that's probably about as big as it's going to get. Travis uh, said that's a good game. So I'm going to definitely check it out soon. And then the final game I picked up was Kirby's Dreamland 3 for the Super Nintendo. This is a game I really never see pop up. And I had a bunch of store credit at one of my favorite stores because I had kind of whittled down my DVD collection a little bit, uh, traded in some books and things like that that I'd already read, and, uh, you know, just put it to this game, which I got for... Again, probably less than half the going rate for the game. So I was like, you know what? It's popping up, so might as well go ahead and pull the trigger on that. I love the Kirby games, as I know you do as well. They're kind of fun, you know, platformers. Usually not very difficult. And uh, yeah, can't wait to check that out. There was one more thing you posted on Twitter, Rich, that really caught my eye. Are you willing to talk about that? Oh, yeah, sure. Absolutely. What was it? Uh, Gravity Rush 2. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I did pick that up recently. Yeah, so as our listeners know, Steven and I played Gravity Rush on the Vita way back in the day, and I've been dying to play Gravity Rush 2. I'm just looking for an excuse. Now, (laughs) you haven't played the first game yet. I have not. Is there a way that you would recommend me playing that? Would it be better to play it on the Vita, or should I pick up a copy? I know they just remastered it for the PS4. Actually, to this day, I've only played the Vita version, but I do have the PS4 version. The problem is the PS4 version has a hefty price tag on it. However, the PS4 is not region locked. It's region free, and it just so happens that you can get the Chinese version of Gravity Rush remastered for about 25 to 30 bucks. 
And there's no difference. I actually mentioned on the show once a long time ago that I thought the vocal tracks were in Chinese. That's completely wrong, actually. The vocal tracks are in kind of a made-up language, like Simlish, kind of, if you know what that is. So it is actually identical to the North American version. So if you want to play it on the PS4 and you don't mind the, you know, the Chinese symbols on the spine, the, the Chinese <laughs> writing, I, I actually think it looks kind of cool then I would recommend going that route. But also playing it on the Vita, uh, like I said, that's how I played it twice now, and uh, it's perfect. Yeah, and as you're going to hear, like when we're talking about our what are you playing, since this is probably a really nice segue, I've uh, you know been giving my Vita a lot of love, man. I've really been enjoying my Vita again. So I already own it for the Vita, so I'll probably play it on that since I already have it. That is awesome. Well... Listen, we got a pencil in. I think we need to put on our our list Klonoa, uh, Klonoa 2 for the PS2, Doom 64, and Gravity Rush 2 as games that we will play for the show. Sure. And listen, I'm, I'm really sorry, but I got to throw in one last score that I forgot about, but I have it in my notes. I got to shout out our good friend Duke Togo because I asked him if he would refurbish my Dreamcasts for me because I have that dreaded controller port problem i actually had to play dynamite cop out of controller port number two which i was very lucky that it worked that way that you could just play the game out of port two dreamcast controller ports there's a fuse on the board that tends to blow out and then your controller ports won't work i have two dreamcasts and both of them had this problem also the battery is a rechargeable battery so like the memory of the system uh, is a rechargeable battery that tends to die so i sent him these boards he was kind enough to replace the fuses and also to put in a battery holder and buy the batteries for me because they're these like i said these weird rechargeable batteries they look like a cr2032 but they're not that so he knew where to get these parts he's a soldering master and he got the parts from China or wherever he got them and he turned everything back around and shipped it back to me. So I got to shout him out. I put everything back together. Everything works perfectly. And it's really cool to have two fully 100% functioning Dreamcasts again, where I don't have to set the clock or, or even just bypass that clock screen every time I turn on the system. It just goes straight into the game. And also all the controller ports work, which is kind of convenient when you're trying to play video games. So thank you very much, Duke Togo. It was a a really cool thing and uh i'm glad i asked because i knew that he likes to refurbish consoles and he, he knows how to solder very well so dude thank you so much you'll probably never hear that thanks since our concert cast stuff went so long <laughs> and he fast it, so. forward through the, all of this i know <laughs>
All right, man. So let's go into what are you playing? Cool. You want me to go first? I only have one. Absolutely. Knock it out. So I played a game called Super Hot. I played it on the Xbox One because it must have been of games with gold because I don't remember buying it, but it was on my list to download. So I've heard so many good things about it. This is a first person shooter where time moves only when you move. So if you move forward, the guys start coming at you. If you stop, they stop. The bullets flying in the air, same thing. And there's all kinds of cool mechanics, like you can throw your gun at the enemies. And when you hit them with something you threw at them, they drop their gun and you can pick it back up. It's very like Matrixy, you know, it's very action movie like, like you can create all these weird like scenarios where you're throwing your gun at one guy and punching a different guy and picking up his gun and jumping over him and all this crazy stuff. And the game is very stylized. Uh, the enemies are all these like red crystal kind of guys and, uh, the environments are very white, so it's a very high contrast kind of thing. It's very addictive. Like each level is like its own little vignette. So you start memorizing things in a way that even if you do it well, you want to do it again because you think, oh, I could do it better. I could do like something cooler <laughs> if I, yeah. you know, throw the katana sword at that guy first and then grab the other guy's gun and turn around. It's just so cool. I mean, it's the most innovative shooter I've played in years, and I really liked it, highly recommend it, and a uh, really cool game. Yeah, Duke's actually mentioned that quite a few times. He's talked about how great that game is. You know, it sounds like it has puzzle elements to it. It seems like, you know, kind of picking up, putting things down, you know, trying to see if you can do it quicker, you know, in certain aspects. So, uh, yeah, it sounds like something that's uh, got a really neat gameplay mechanic. Yeah, for sure. All right, so what about you? What have you been playing? All right, man. So uh, I went to the beach for a week on vacation in a house with my wife and kids. And we would all get down to the beach and do that morning session. And then we would come back to the house to eat lunch. And then, of course, you know, my two-year-old, he's got a nap. So regrettably, you know, I'm the one that has to stay behind uh, with him while he naps and everybody else goes back out to the beach. N not regrettable. I, I love having that afternoon to, you know, just kind of relax, maybe take a nap myself. But what I found myself doing was playing a lot of Vita. And uh, one of the games that I think I had gotten from um, Play Asia is uh, limited edition Curse Castilla on the Vita. This is a kind of Ghost and Goblins clone. It has a little bit of a Castlevania-type feel to it uh, that the original Ghost of Goblins doesn't. I actually beat the game while I was at the beach, and the funny thing is, is I got the bad ending, and the reason is, is there's this sort of door at the end of the game after you beat this last boss, and if you can put in all five of these rubies, then you unlock that vault, and you get to continue on to get the good ending. So I did finish the game, but I only got one of those rubies. I saw it along the way. You do have some different options as far as which way you can go. And I think those timed elements and those different ways that you can go are how you end up picking up these other jewels to get the good ending. So I don't know if it's one I'm going to go back to and uh, try to get a good ending on. Probably not, but I did enjoy my time with the game. And if you like Ghost and Goblins, definitely a game you should pick up. 
the other game that I played is one that I'm sure you're going to be fascinated with. And if you've never played one of these games, Sean, I highly recommend it. I think you would like it a lot. Uh, and that's Danganronpa Trigger Happy Havoc. This is the first game in the series. It reminds me a lot of 999, but it's a lot more sinister. The little black and white bear that you've probably seen on some of the covers. Fantastic character. The story is phenomenal in this game and really, really loved it a lot. And I can't wait to play the other Danganronpa games. I hear the second one is even better. Instead of uh, being set in a school, it's actually set on an island. So, uh, yeah, it's a uh, very sort of murder mystery game. There's these group of kids and there's a killer amongst you. And basically what you have to do to escape, you have to kill someone. And then there's like the, have you played the uh, Phoenix Wright games? I have not, but I'm, I'm kind of got the gist of them, I think. Yeah. So there's this like trial, like after someone dies. And if the person can kill someone and not be found guilty, then that person gets to leave the school. And uh, so it has this very Phoenix Wright mechanic where you have to figure out who the guilty party is. And it has these sort of like little mini games that you have to play in doing that. It's really interesting. Very great concept. I love how just pure evil it is. And <laughs> it's really, really cool. So uh, definitely one I say to uh, check out. And then the final game that I've been playing is uh, you've probably seen if you've see me logged on to my PS4. I've been playing a lot of Axiom Verge. Now, I do have this on Vita as well. I had bought it for PS3 back in the day, and I transferred it over to my Vita, and I started playing it there. But uh, I don't know, man. I, I played a little bit of it, and I was like, you know what? I'm going to go play it on PS4. Started playing on PS4, got into it really, really deep, and then sort of like regretted it. And I was like, oh, well, I can't play this in bed, you know. I wish I had my Vita now. But uh, yeah, I'm actually enjoying it very much, much to my family's chagrin, because they're having to sit there and watch me play this game. <laughs> if you love Metroidvania games, I would say it's not as tough as like, say, something like Super Metroid. Probably a little bit lighter than that, but much more difficult than, say, like Zeo Drifter, which I talked about a few shows ago. If you like Metroidvania types of games, this was an indie game that was done by one guy. Right. Entire game, music and all. It is fantastic. It's fabulous. I'm at the end of it right now and, uh, you know, should have that finished up by the next show. If you like sci-fi themes, this is one that's way out there and uh really cool storyline. So, uh, Definitely check it out. And uh, actually, Cartridge Club did it a few months ago, and they did an episode on it, and that's kind of what propelled me to play it. I listened to the episode. Fantastic episode. And definitely worth the listen. Our buddy Kevin and Randbox were on that show. So awesome. we're checking out. Very cool.
So, Sean, you and I have been doing this new thing where we come up with this sort of question for the month right before we get ready to podcast. And we've done this for the last two shows. So we figured, you know, hey, this is working out pretty well, getting some good response. So we asked some of our listeners, what is your favorite Bruce Willis movie that is not Die Hard? And we had some great responses, right? Yeah, we did. I actually made sure to specify not in the Die Hard series because I knew we would have some clowns that would say Die Hard 2, you know what I mean? Or Die Hard 3. Yeah. Uh, So you ready for some of the responses? Absolutely. All right. So our friend Disposed Hero said The Last Boy Scout. I've never seen this one, Rich. Have you? Yeah, really, really good. Uh, Bruce Willis, Damon Wayans. Fun movie. I mean, not like blockbuster or anything, but it's a fun one. You should check it out. I will. Uh, Musty Hobbit, he says, Unbreakable. I haven't seen this one either. No, I haven't seen that one. Okay. I've heard it's good. I've heard it's one of Shyamalan's stronger films, so I'm not against seeing it. I'm largely uninterested in Shyamalan movies, but yeah, same you know, here. I wouldn't be against watching it. Metal Froze said, Most anything from the fifth element, but my favorite might be the scene at the airport. I don't remember that particular scene, but I love The Fifth Element. I saw it for the first time probably like two years ago. It was very recently. so Yeah, it was almost my pick for this, actually, but that's not what I'm going with. Nice. Buried on Mars said, look who's talking. Haha, <laughs> just kidding. It's Looper. Have you seen Looper, Rich? I, I haven't seen Looper. I didn't know he was even in that film. Yeah, Looper's pretty cool. Gotta say, it's kind of almost like a spoiler to say that he was in it, um, uh, if I remember okay. correctly, but it's still worth watching. Like, very cool, like, time travel kind of sci-fi movie. I liked it a lot. And lastly, uh, Bill McGee, our good friend Bill from the Collector cast, he said Lucky Number Slevin, which is another movie I've never seen, but my wife says is awesome. So have you seen that one? No, I haven't. That's awesome. You got a wife recommendation there. Yeah, let me see if we have any more. Oh, we got one more. Sorry, it wasn't showing. Herb Beta Patched said, that time he cameoed on Friends. (laughs) (laughs) I've definitely not seen that. No, me neither. Was never never a a fan. Right. Uh, Team Seinfeld, man. Oh, all right. (laughs) I'm, I'm neither. I was not into either one of those shows growing up, so... But I get it. I get the the love for both of those. So uh, what's yours, Rich? Mine's a movie that maybe you haven't seen either. It stars Bruce Willis and actually a pre-Sex in the City. Very, very attractive Sarah Jessica Parker. And that's a movie called Striking Distance. You ever seen that one? No, I don't even know if I even because I was looking at his IMDb. I don't know if I even noticed that. Yeah, it's kind of a sleeper. Uh, I actually have it in my DVD collection, and uh, he plays this uh, river cop. You know, he's just riding around in a boat, you know, usually just writing tickets and stuff like that. And uh, he happens to see someone throwing, like, a rolled-up carpet off a bridge. It's this, like, kind of murder mystery kind of thing where he's trying to figure it out. It kind of delves into the police force, a little bit of corruption and stuff like that. So, uh, yeah, it's a fascinating movie. I love it. And uh, there's this really creepy song that plays in it. You've probably heard it before. It's an oldie song uh, by Sam the Sham and the Pharaohs, uh, Little Red Riding Hood. Do you know that song? That goes like, hey there, little red riding hood. You know that? <laughs> it's ringing a bell like crazy, <laughs> It's like bro, you but sure are really looking good it. walking through the spooky old woods alone, and they just howl at the end of the song. I think I know it. Ow! Oh! Who's that I see walking in these woods? 
wise little red riding hood hey there little red riding hood you sure are looking good you're everything a big bad wolf could want listen to me little red riding hood i don't think awesome man well what was it called again it's called Striking Distance. Okay. Yeah, I'm check gonna, it out, man. Let me know what you think. Yeah, I will. So I got, now I have a list of movies that I want to watch. So <laughs> actually, before I said, can I just say that I watched all three Die Hard movies in preparation for this? Yeah, you did some serious <laughs> fucking homework, man. Yeah. So I've seen them all before, but I, I realize I haven't seen Die Hard 2 in many, many years. I didn't remember that whatsoever, except for the part where he ejector seats himself out of the airplane, which is one of the more famous scenes. But yeah, yippee-ki-yay. Yeah, you know, Die Hard 3 was always my favorite, but I think that was kind of based on the fact that it was played on TV so much when we were growing up. Do you remember that, Rich? Uh, no, I don't. You know, I didn't have cable growing up, so maybe that's... Yeah, I don't even know if it was cable. I just feel like this movie, even if it was cut and put on like TBS or something, was just on TV all the time. Uh, but yeah, I watched all three. The first one holds up so well. It's such a great movie, and uh, Rickman is just freaking amazing oh, in it. The, yeah. the scene R. of R. him, I mean, the slow motion of him falling off the building, his face yeah, spoiler. in Spoiler. Like, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, <laughs> spoiler, the, bad, the good guys win at the end. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, Die Hard 2 is just kind of a weird little movie, like takes place at an airport and there's a terrorist trying to control the planes. And then Die Hard 3, Die Hard with a Vengeance, of course, has uh, Samuel L. Jackson in it, and that's just like a really fun movie. I was always obsessed with the water jug riddle in that movie. Do you remember that? I don't remember that. No, no, no. So there's like a task that they have to do, because you know uh, Jeremy Irons is like making them run around doing all this stupid crap, like trying to keep them busy while he steals the gold. And there's this one thing where they have he gives them an empty five-gallon jug and an empty three-gallon jug, and they have to put four gallons of water on the scale to disarm the bomb. But what's weird about it is it's a simple math problem, but the way the film is edited, they skip a step. And I always was like, it's so stupid because it's just a dumb algebra equation that I can explain real quickly, but they skip a step in the movie. So they don't fully explain how to do it. So just real quick, to get four gallons into one of the jugs, you fill the five-gallon jug, you pour it into three, so that leaves two gallons in your five-gallon jug. You empty the three-gallon jug, you pour your two, two gallons into the three-gallon jug, you fill the five-gallon jug, and then you pour what it ends up being one gallon out of the five-gallon jug into the three-gallon jug, because there's only room for one more gallon. So then you're left with four gallons of water in the five-gallon jug. This is such a stupid thing to explain, but I was like obsessed with this stupid riddle when I was younger and I could never figure it out. And it's because the movie is edited in a way that they skip the step that leaves them with two gallons. It's just all of a sudden they have two gallons in the five gallon jug when you watch the movie. It's like, wait, how did they get there? They skipped a step. This is so stupid, Rich. Um <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, I think Die Hard 3 is like my favorite. I acknowledge that Die Hard 1 is probably a better movie. It's just more like, it's so solid. It's so like almost perfect. Plus, 
by the second and third movie, they were starting to wear out the catchphrases, like the most famous yippee ki motherfucker. In the first movie, he whispers that into the walkie-talkie. It's not like an action movie thing. It's actually really subtle and uh, played perfectly. By the end of the second and third movies, he's just screaming it as a catchphrase that they had to throw in the script. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. Yeah, you got to get that catchphrase. And if anybody's wondering, uh, algebra cast is not going to be a thing on this show. <laughs> Dude, we're going to have trigonometry lessons from now on. <laughs> Listen, if Retro Fandango can do food safety, we can do trig, calculus, algebra. <laughs> <laughs> I'm tapping out, man, if we're doing that. All right, let's get back to business. I want to give you my Bruce Willis movie. Now I'm going to pick an oddball hipster movie. Can you guess what it is? Uh, no, I can't. It's Breakfast of Champions. Do you know what that is? No, I haven't seen that one. Okay, so Breakfast of Champions is this crazy-ass, ridiculous absurdity of a movie. It's based on a Kurt Vonnegut novel by the same uh, okay. name. Yeah, I've heard of that novel. Yeah, and th- the novel itself is absurd and crazy and just it has barely any plot. It's just these insane characters interacting with each other but bruce willis is the lead he plays a used car salesman who's he's very famous in his town but he's just kind of losing his mind nick nolte is in it omar epps is in it and glenn headley may she rest in peace plays a character called francine and she's just adorable and if you like slapstick non sequiturs and just like kind of what the hell is going on kind of comedy you got to watch breakfast of champions it's so unlike any other bruce willis movie it's it's amazing very cool and we can't forget about his uh, can- uh i don't want to call it a cameo because it's the way the movie's set up so i guess he would be kind of a, a main actor in uh, pulp fiction as well you know it's one you know kind of don't think about sometimes you know yeah true there were a couple in his filmography that i was like oh he was in sin city i really love that movie so yeah, there, there yeah, were quite a, a few one. that i was close to picking but i had to go with breakfast of champions and it's on youtube i was actually watching it before we uh went on the air here and it's it's as funny as i remember yeah, I thought his filmography, I was like really shocked at like the stuff he had been in and stuff that I really liked. I remember Bruce when he was uh, with, uh, was it Sybil Shepherd? It was in Moonlighting together. Yeah, that's right. Uh, when he started out, I just remember my mother loving that show, but hating Bruce Willis. Oh, she hated him so much. And, and I remember like, I really never wanted to watch Die Hard, even though I was really into action films. I was into Schwarzenegger and Stallone so much. I watched every one of their films. And I, I don't think I called Die Hard until I was in college. Everybody's like, have you seen Die Hard? I was like, no, I don't like Bruce Willis. But, uh, man, his transition into an action film star, I think that's what really makes the movie. Um, he's really, really good in that film. And uh, he's a really likable character. I mean, kind of an everyman, you know, who's uh, boarding this uh, terrorist plot. So, uh, yeah, if you've never seen Die Hard, check it out. This is the 30th anniversary of the movie. And, of course, why we picked playing the game Die Hard Arcade and Dynamite Cop, right? That's exactly right. As we mentioned last <laughs> month, we planned this from the get-go. We, we knew that. <laughs> yeah, obviously on the radar. I mean, my calendar, you know, in my pantry, it's got starred 30th anniversary Die Hard. But uh, let's go ahead and get into the game. We'll talk about our participants. Us, of course, Crabmaster2000, who is loving this game. And then, of course, old reliable Dougley007 joined us in this. Now, I got to say, participation was low, but there is a reason. We don't do this often. 
These games are a little bit on the pricey side, right, Sean? Right, and I got to tell you, I don't know how I have an actual copy of Die Hard Arcade. It's missing the manual, but I have a legit copy of that. Um, with Dynamite Cop, I just I had a burned copy. Like I don't have a legit copy of that. So yeah, a little bit hard to find. But Dreamcast, you can just burn the games, and a lot of people have modded Saturns and. Saturn emulation is is really starting to heat up nowadays. If, if you mm-hmm. follow it, Saturn emulation has always been kind of a a real challenge because of the system architecture and and everything. But it's really making headway recently, which is kind of cool. So, but anyway, yeah, these are two pretty pricey games. I was surprised to find that out. Yeah, I had gotten one I think as a Christmas present, Die Hard Arcade, from my wife, and the other Dynamite Cop I had picked up. Uh, I was looking for it at uh, RWX last year, came home, found it at a good price, and, you know, just went ahead and picked it up because I heard, you know, it was a good game. Anyway, for this show, what we're going to try to do is we're going to try to talk about the games cohesively because Dynamite Cop is the sequel to Die Hard Arcade, and they're a lot alike in various ways, but there's a few differences in those, so we'll try to talk about them together but you know we will make some distinctions from time to time between the two games i think it'd just be easier than splitting the games up and just rehashing old things so anyway die hard arcade known in japan as dynamite deca which means detective its arcade was released in japan in 1996 on saturn in early 1997 in north america and japan it was also released on the ps2 in japan as a part of their Sega Ages line. It's the first beat-em-up to use 3D texture matte polygonal graphics. Published by Sega in cooperation with Fox Interactive, of course, because it was based on the movie Die Hard. And Dynamite Cop was its sequel, as I mentioned. Dynamite Cop was released as Dynamite Deca 2 in Japan. The arcade version was released in 1998, and it was released on Dreamcast in North America and Japan in 1999. It was published by Sega without using the Die Hard franchise this time. There was also a third game called Asian Dynamite, which was released only in arcades. I didn't even know that, and uh, never played any Asian Dynamite. Have you, Sean? I have not. I did not know it existed until I started reading the outline, and now I'm intrigued as to whether I can emulate this game or not, because I would love to play it. Yeah, we'll have to find out if we can play that or not and uh, let you check it out for us. So, like most beat-em-ups, there's not a lot of story. Uh, and few minimal characters, right? The plot is basically the same in both games. It's rescue the president's daughter and stop Wolf White Fang Hongo. What a name. (laughs) (laughs) In the first game in Die Hard Arcade, you're stopping him from opening a vault, stealing a lot of money. And then in the second game, I think basically um, they have commandeered a passenger liner and you're trying to stop him. In Die Hard Arcade, you play as John McClane or Chris Thompson. In Japan, these characters were known as Bruno Dellinger and Cindy Holiday. And in Dynamite Cop, you also play again as Bruno Dellinger, Gene Ivey, or Eddie Brown. So anything about the characters that you want to mention, Sean? I only played as Ivy, as you could probably guess. (laughs) (laughs) Do you have to do like a 
player two to play as a female character in Die Hard. I didn't see an option. I played through as John McClane. So I either missed the option of a character select or that is your player two. I'm not exactly sure. I believe it's your player two, but having played Die Hard Arcade alone, I did co-op Dynamite Cop with my son, but it's just because it lends itself as being a little bit easier game. And so it was something that, you know, he could play with me because we could have unlimited continues without having to do the special tactics, which we'll talk about later, right? Right. So, a little bit about the setting. Of course, I mentioned that the first game in Die Hard Arcade is set just like in the first movie. It's not called Nakatomi Tower. It has a different name, but it's basically the same setting. And then Dynamite Cop, of course, you're on a cruise ship, and you can also go over to an island at some part of the game. Now, with Dynamite Cop you actually get to pick from three different scenarios. And so sometimes you make it to the island, and some of those, and sometimes you don't. I think the second one actually stays on the boat. So did you notice this about the game? Did you play all or just one of the different scenarios? I played all three, but I only completed Mission 1. So it's interesting Mm -hmm. to hear you say that, because Mission 1 does take you to the island, but I didn't realize that 2 and 3 might not do that. I started missions two and three, but I didn't play completely through them. Yeah, I co-opted it with my son. We beat mission one, and we made it to the final boss on the second mission together. Yeah, fun playing with my son. He's seven now, and uh, man, he loves the beat-em-ups, so uh, something cool for us to do together. Yeah, that's amazing. These are both perfect games for somebody his age. Uh, that must have been a lot of fun. Oh, yeah, we had a blast together. It's uh, one of our favorite things to do. Awesome. So rolling into the gameplay, this is, of course, a beat-em-up, but it has some different move sets and things that are just added to the game. Let me ask you, are you just kind of playing this like button mashy, or did you take some time to maybe read the manual or look up online some of the moves for this game? I definitely wasn't looking in the manual or looking up strategies or anything online like in an FAQ, but with talking to you, you were kind of cluing me in on some easy combos that you do, like the... uh, I forget, was it punch, punch, kick, or kick, kick, That's it, yeah. Punch, punch, kick, Yeah. yeah. So I was getting into not just being super button mashy, but kind of picking my spots with when to punch and when to kick because the kick is more powerful, but it takes longer. You know what I mean? So mm-hmm. um, starting with a punch and then kicking for a little more power is usually the way I go. And then there's there's also grappling and you get into these insane never-ending wrestling <laughs> moves where you're, you're doing headlocks and suplexing and all this other stuff. So that's that's also really cool. Yeah, there's one you can grab them by their feet and like swing them around in a circle and just toss them, you know. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, all kinds of crazy wrestling moves, body slams, pile drivers, suplexes. I mean, the list goes on and on. It's a really deep rule set. And for that reason, a lot of people have compared this game to not simply a beat-em-up, but sort of a mixture of a beat-em-up in a fighting game. And I can really see that. Yeah, definitely. There's no like special moves per se there's no hadoukens or helicopter kicks or anything like that that would require a combination button press but you can like i said develop a strategy for your combos and picking your spots for when you want to grapple and and do some sick wrestling moves 
Yeah, I kind of feel like this is the type of game you can approach it any way you want to. Like, if you want to learn those moves, you can, you know, spend time doing that, have some fun with the game. Or if you just want to just kind of be button mashy, like I think you and I both were, right? Yeah, just doing some like much. little simple combos to make it through the game, you can still do that. We mentioned before that with Dynamite Cop, you said you completed Mission 1, but you did not complete Missions 2 and 3. And our buddy Krabby spoke about the sort of the lives of the characters, and I want to read what he put. He put, finish the game with all three characters now, need to confirm it, but I think each character has a different amount of credits to them. So when Grey Ghost 81 asked earlier about having unlimited and then had a finite number, I'm curious if you picked different players each time. Seemed like Ivy had unlimited and Eddie had at least four, and I think Bruno had like nine, if I remember correctly. Eddie may have the least credits, but he is definitely the most powerful character. I was able to get through with him on my first attempt with just the four credits. He is fast and strong, whereas Bruno seems more strong, and Ivy seems faster. It kind of brings us some good points. One thing is about the number of lives you get, and then... The other thing is sort of these character attributes, which we see in games such as Streets of Rage, right? You remember playing through that and like how the girl will be like less powerful, but will be a lot quicker. And you, you'll kind of have like your average everyday guy who's sort of middle of the road. And then you'll have somebody who's slower in movement, but is usually like the strongest. And so we see this concept in beat 'em ups all the time, right? Absolutely right. And just to comment, this is terrible, but I still haven't figured out the whole credits thing. I mean, I've tried deleting my saves and starting with a fresh save and trying everything short of trying different characters, which is one of uh, Krabby's hypotheses. Did you have any luck figuring this out? Well, I did some research on oh, it. Thank God. And <laughs> <laughs> yeah, more homework. Right. <laughs> So I did some research on it, and apparently the number of lives you get depends on the mission you select. Mission 1, supposedly, is unlimited credits. Okay. Mission 2 is, I think, you know, like Krabby was saying, you get around 9 credits. And then the final mission, which is Mission 3, the longest one, you have to make it through that game, I think, on 4 credits. So Krabby was able to complete each one, which is cool. But I think that's how it's set up, and that's what I read about the game. I can't verify that, but as the guys on the Cartridge Club say, if you say it on the show, then it's true. Yeah, no, and that it makes complete sense because that conforms to the experience that I had with the game, which is I had unlimited continues on mission one and then not unlimited continues on the other two missions, whether it was a brand new save or if I had an existing save file. So that makes total sense. And I'm glad that we didn't just leave that hanging because it was commented upon more than just once. So very cool. Now, I want to go back and talk about Die Hard Arcade real quick and the system for extra lives on that. Oh, yeah. I, 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 can't, <laughs> I can't remember. How many lives do you get? Do you recall? Was it like four or five uh, continues in that game? It was, it was a small number, for sure. That's right. I think it was four. Okay. But there's a way that you can earn extra credits for this game, and you could basically just max out and get as many credits as you wanted. And I'll let you talk about that, since I think this is one of your favorite parts of the game. <laughs> well, this game, it's called uh, Deep Scan, and it's kind of like one of those LCD games you had as a kid. Like, 
It's a little more robust than that, but it's such a it's a very simple game. Uh, it almost reminded me of Jaws on the NES before you jump out of the boat, where you're you just <laughs> yeah, that's true. you control this battleship at the top of the screen, and you can drop depth charges or torpedoes or whatever you want to call them off of either side of your ship. And you can move the ship back and forth. And then there are these submarines going back and forth. They're worth different amount of points based on how deep they are because the Mm -hmm. deeper ones are harder to time. My strategy was to just kind of strafe my battleship back and forth while spamming the, the depth charges. And you do have to avoid the submarine shoot up at you. So you, there is also that that you have to avoid, but you can shoot their projectiles. The funny thing about this is, at first, I even put on the forum, like, this This is so boring. I really don't want to play this. And I said, I'm going to use my action replay and just cheat and put in a cheat code for unlimited continues. But for whatever reason, my action replay cart wasn't working. Like, it didn't boot up when I turned on the system. So I said, whatever, I'll play Deep Scan. I ended up playing Deep Scan probably three times as long as I played actual Die Hard Arcade because <laughs> I played that until I had 80 credits. God. <laughs> <laughs> so that's hilarious, man. I mean, by the end, honestly, I wasn't hating it. At first, I was like, oh, God, this is a bore. But I put on music. I was listening to some great albums that came out in 1989 while I was moving my <laughs> ship back and forth. <laughs> so um, it turned out to be not too bad and i had it obviously a huge cushion of credits to just kind of not have um a lot of pressure to beat the game because i really wanted to beat it so what about you did you i know you did a lot of deep scan as well right i did i probably got about 55 or 60 credits in the deep scan what i really liked about it was the fact that even if you died you didn't have to like start over at zero extra credits it just added yeah, to what so you had so you could yeah yeah so you could be poor at playing the game and still over time earn a lot of credits in order to finish Die Hard Arcade. So I do appreciate that about it. Of course, I like the game. It's an Atari game. Very much. It was actually released on the 2600 as Subscan. So there is an Atari game out there. It's a little more archaic than Deep Scan. But uh, yeah, I I thought it was fine, man. I enjoyed it. And you know what? If you're going to give out some extra credits, make people work for it. You know, why not? This game's tough. It allowed people to try to beat the game without additional credits if they chose or if they wanted to grind a little bit for some extra lives that they could do that and so everyone could be happy and finish the game. You know, I agree. It's it's very novel. And uh, now you got me thinking of there are games where you have like a tiny little mini game in between levels, like think Super Mario 3 or the Kirby games where you can get an extra life or maybe a continue but to have a completely separate game that has nothing to do with the core game that you're going to play to rack up credits, that is pretty novel. And I honestly can't think of another game that has that. I'm sure they're out there, but nothing springs to mind. You know what I mean? It seems very, very novel to me. So good point. All right, well, let's move on and talk about the quirky weapons in these games. This is something that was available in both games. There are weapons such as guns, there are machine guns, and there's even one time you can pick up this tank 
turret and shoot it at people. It's stuff like that, and it goes into the bizarre and ridiculous, like a lighter with hairspray, into like (laughs) swinging a ladder, and I think you can swing a grandfather clock at people at one time. It's just the most bizarre items ever. I don't know. How did you feel about this in terms of like Die Hard being this like serious action movie, (laughs) but then this game taking a, a lighter, kind of sillier approach? Oh man, that's a really good question. And I'm trying to think of another example to like compare it to. I don't think of like the sanctity of the diehard films when I'm going to sure. play the, you know, it's not like they made, um, I don't know. What's a really like highfalutin movie like Terminator two. Yeah. So like Terminator two, there's been many video games made of that. And yeah, that those are very serious. So I guess, yeah, if you had a Terminator two game where you were throwing pork buns at people and spraying the hairspray thing and throwing exercise bikes and everything, it might be a little off putting, but for yeah, save that <laughs> for the fried green tomatoes video game. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Yeah, but for some reason, I loved the weapons, and I didn't. I wasn't thinking, of, oh, this ain't Die Hard. Like, I don't know. I thought it was really cool. I loved. <laughs> you mentioned the anti-tank gun thing, and then there's also a anti-ship missile that like clears yeah. the screen at one point in uh, Dynamite <laughs> Cop, and it's just funny as hell, man. I thought it was fantastic. Yeah, I think it's fun, too. And, you know, probably the time that it came out, I don't know that Die Hard was that sort of classically beloved action film, though they took the license from it. So I was kind of surprised to see some of that stuff in there and for them to make it so kind of tongue in cheek, but probably for ratings and stuff, making it more like over the top and ridiculous, probably uh, made it more like palpable for like people doing the ratings. You know what I mean? Yeah, very true. It's not bloody at all. It's very uh, cartoony and uh, very Japanese now that I think about it. Like, this is all very Japanese influence for sure. Yeah, especially when you're fighting a giant octopus. That's right. On the ship. (laughs) 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 All right, man. Um, I wanted to talk to you about one of the systems of the gameplay that I really didn't get into or really understand. And maybe you can enlighten me on the power-up system in Dynamite Cop. I didn't understand it either, man. We suck. I mean, at least you figured out the credits thing. But yeah, I couldn't figure out the power-up thing either. Krabby didn't write a novel about it? I don't think so. Uh, <laughs> Where you at, Kelsey? Come on, man. So, so my tactic in any event when I was playing both games was to just pick up absolutely everything. You know, uh, there's a lot of life replenishment, these little pills and first aid kits, I think, in Die Hard. But in Dynamite Cop, you're specifically talking about these P's and E's, and there's all these letters that you pick up, and it makes your it actually makes your character look like the Terminator with like lightning going over them. But I don't know. I don't know if it gives you like a stronger attack temporarily. It, it certainly doesn't give you invincibility. I can tell you that. Yeah. If I had to venture a, a slightly educated guess, I would say it powers your attack up. Yeah, either that or allows you to do more specialized moves or more powerful moves as most games do. So again, I don't know. You know, I was kind of deferring to you on that. Something I should have probably done more homework (laughs) on before the show. So I apologize to our listening audience out there. If you know what those are for, send us a message. How melodic. Who's that nigga on the street with his hands in his pockets 
Also, one of the other things that you can do in this game, besides beating the absolute hell out of everyone, is that you can also arrest them. And, again, I'm not a manual reader, didn't know this. I think I probably did it a few times by accident, but our buddy Krabby talks about it, and he wrote on our forums, The arrest can be nice if you have someone who has strayed away from the pack, but it's nearly impossible to finish if there's a group or someone with a ranged weapon. It clears the guy quick, but feels maybe too risky most of the time. It doesn't always function when I feel it should. It also feels like it should be worth a little something extra for the effort. Maybe a small health or ammo boost? How about you, Sean? Did you do it? No, same thing. I didn't even know you could do this. And kind of playing it after I found out about it, I couldn't pull it off. I really don't know how to do it, so... Yeah, it's something to do with like grappling and you're able to grapple them and then you, I think you press punch twice or something like that and then it arrests them. But you have to have the gun in your hand. Okay, okay. so you have to have the handgun. So there's that caveat to it. And then the second caveat to it is that they can escape from the arrest. So is it worthwhile? Krabby says, yeah, sometimes maybe it is. I think it's a neat little thing that they put into the game. But unlike the arcade game Narc, I don't know if you've ever played that, where you can actually walk up and just run into people in a wrestling. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah, that's a big part of that game, and I think it was a lot better implemented than it was in this game. I think it's a neat feature, and it gives you some options besides killing everyone in the game. But at the same time, I think it's a really tough thing to pull off. And, of course, you can't go through the entire game just arresting everyone. That'd be a cool thing to try to attempt, though, for an achievement. Yeah, a no... uh what do they call it? A no-kill run? Like a non-fatal playthrough? <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> you might could do that, but not with the bosses, I think. And you'd probably have a hard time holding on to your pistol. Right. All right. So let's move on and talk a little bit about the quick time events. Yes. Were you a fan of these? I was a fan. I think they're really fun. And I don't know wh when or where I ever played this game on an actual arcade cabinet. There might have been one in the mall when I was growing up. We had an arcade in our local shopping mall, so maybe I played it in there. But I love the quick time events in this game. And they do this awesome cinematic like split screen thing when you get it right. And it says success really big on the top yeah. of the screen. <laughs> But one of the things I want to mention about it is um, playing it on a home console, it doesn't say, like in Shenmue or something, it doesn't say press X. It says press kick or press punch or jump. And then, right, so right. when I was playing it, I screwed up a bunch of them. And the first time I was playing through uh, Dynamite Cop, because I played that first. And I had to like kind of train myself, okay, like kick, punch, jump, kick, punch, jump, like mm -hmm. memorizing the button rather than looking for like X or A or whatever. Another cool thing about the quick time events is you might want to fail them because you actually bypass content by succeeding in them, right? Like you, you yeah. will miss rooms if you succeed at a quick time event. You get a cool little mini cutscene, but uh, if you want to see everything in the game and 100% it, technically you want to fail those quick time events. So that's kind of cool. It's fun. There's nothing like punching somebody in the face as you're running full speed down the hall. I don't know like how practical that is or if you can actually run and punch someone like that, but maybe I'll try it at work one day. If I can <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the whole like the physics of some of them are so awesome because they're just so cartoony. Like you just level these people. It's a, it's amazing. 
Yeah, it's a lot of fun, and I think it's a really, really cool addition to the game. Again, our buddy Kelsey writes, I like the quick time events for the most part. They feel very satisfying to do with the slow-mo recap with success blinking on the screen. And some are just silly to watch, like seeing John McClane doing a diving handspring to dodge an explosive or just duck under a missile launcher. The elevator dodging one feels the most rewarding by letting you gain a bunch of help for doing well, though. And yeah, we should mention that there's like an elevator one. And I think there's on the boat scene, like when you're going to um, the island, I think there's a scene where you can kind of go back and forth and get more life. You know, you have to dodge left to right. You remember that? Yes. And that one caught me by surprise because, again, I'm doing this whole thing of, uh, OK, Punch, kick, kick jump, punch. punch, kick, jump. Yeah. Which one is it? And then it's like, hit left. And I was like, oh, shit. Like, wait. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, that, yeah, I like how they uh, kind of mix it up there. Uh, so I just want to throw in here because I couldn't let it go. I tried to look up. I, I think I have a little bit of a clue of what the power-up system does. Oh, okay. So um, I read a couple FAQs. And it looks like you can do special moves, like special combos. But here's the thing. I'm reading an FAQ and it's showing these uh, special moves and it says during power up. So this is probably when your meter is full. But check this out. If you're playing as Gene and you want to do what's called the super stick roll, here's what you have to do. Let me take a deep breath for this one. The combo is grab y y y y x x x x x x x x x i'm dead serious it's genius <laughs> that combo is as ridiculous as these games are yeah <laughs> no it's perfect and so that i mean come on man <laughs> the funny thing is it probably doesn't even work it's probably just a big joke and people are still trying it to this yeah day. like this faq is just a troll like that. <laughs> <laughs> oh man that's great well thanks for clarifying that i appreciate it if we're wrong or this faq's wrong you know feel free again to, to buzz in and contact us and let us know yeah with the QTs, I also wanted to talk about another area of the game that wasn't fighting, and that is the cutscenes. I'm curious to hear your thoughts on the cutscenes. Oh, I love them. Like classic Sega, classic crazy Sega, like bad voice acting, just over the top insanity. <laughs> They're beautiful. They're glorious. <laughs> Some of them only lasting one to two seconds right. <laughs> while they load for the next one, just being so jumpy. Yeah, I, I found that Die Hard Arcade was a little bit annoying and it was a bit off-putting just because it was so choppy. But I did find that Dynamite Cop was better you know it was more well done and you know that may be because of capabilities of the system i'm not sure you know i don't know like how that works right but i definitely thought it was interesting it adds to the story it's not like a beat em up like double dragon or something where these bad guys come out punch your girlfriend in the stomach walk off with her and that's all the story and exposition you get until the end of the game so it was a continuation and uh for that reason i'll give them some props but Eh, not the most fun thing to watch sometimes, right? Yeah, I can accept that. But I, I, I am totally uh, into that kind of stuff, especially with Sega. They're very well known. I mean, if you look at House of the Dead or Ghost Squad, like those games are just, just classic, That's amazingly true. bad voice acting and cutscenes. So I was into it. Mm, don't talk bad about House of the Dead around my wife. <laughs> 
Oh, she's a fan? No, I'm I'm with it. I, lo- I love those games. In college, we used to go to our, we had a bowling alley in our student union and it had an arcade in it. And she and I uh, really bonded over House of the Dead. It's one of our favorite things to play together. Awesome. We actually played it on the Wii together. Yep. Great, great ports. I wish they had the original one on the Wii. They just have uh, two and three, three on that comp and then the the other one that they made, the uh, Overkill. But yeah, I wish there was like a legit, besides owning it on Saturn and having a Saturn light gun, which I don't have to play House of the Dead 1. But uh, yeah, don't have that. Uh, anyway, moving right along. Let's talk a little bit about the boss battles in the game. Wow. Bizarre. <laughs> I mean, the characters in this game are bizarre on their own, but uh, the boss battles, I mean, they go from fighting a guy in a football helmet to uh, fighting a guy in a kitchen, a chef. Yeah. The turtle guy. Yeah. <laughs> the turtle guys. <laughs> or the Some scenes, depending on when you go through it, you go through it the second time. Sometimes they're wearing crab suits. And I think another time they're wearing like shark suits. Like you go in that room with those three guys, you know what I'm talking yeah, about? Yeah, yeah. It switches up depending on what you pick. You mentioned the Kraken, which is an awesome one. So again, you know, this this whole concept of taking sort of like a movie franchise. It is a serious action film or takes itself as a serious action film and kind of turning that on its head and making, you know, like a more kind of comical approach to the game. And I think you said it best. It feels like very Japanese, right? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I don't think I have anything to add to that. It's just very off the wall in in a great way. Yeah, and the final boss battles, uh, definitely quarter suckers, you know. <laughs> so. Yeah, so let's, let's talk about that because you and I have, I think, kind of a reversed opinion on that because when you were texting, uh, I had a really, really hard time with the boss on Dynamite mm-hmm. Cop, which, like I said, I played that first, and luckily I was playing Mission 1 with Unlimited Continues. I must have wasted 30 continues on that final boss battle. It was just... I felt like I was just getting manhandled and just juggled. And every time I tried to get a, a hit on him, he was just knocking me down. And it was starting to piss me off, to be quite honest. When I played Die Hard, the only thing that was annoying me was the um, invisible life bar. The first form of the boss is pretty invulnerable for a long time before you can start doing actual damage to his life bar. But I didn't have nearly as hard of a time. I told you I probably went through about 10 credits on combine the both the final two forms of the final boss of die hard so yeah um now crabby i i don't know if you have his statement but crabby had a good he said he had a good strategy for the final boss in dynamite cop and didn't have a problem with that at all so maybe i just had my own troubles there but uh sounds like you didn't like the die hard final boss yeah i wasn't crazy about it i think he had two forms as well and so that was a little bit annoying. And like you said, the invisible life bar, which he wasn't the only boss that had it, but it was very annoying. I hated the pieces of the wall that kind of shot out at you. Yeah, impossible to get out of the way almost. Yeah, it was just aggravating and just felt very contrived. And just in addition to the game, that was just very unnecessary. You know, let's just duke it out and let's let it in there. The second form, too, as well, like the throwing the swords in you in Die Hard <laughs> yeah. Arcade and the swords just like sticking in you and staying Hell there yeah. like for a while. <laughs> Again, just kind of added to the overall comedy of the game. It was fun, you know, and it's the quarter eater, you know, it's that's what it is and probably what it was in the arcade as well. It's fitting. As far as Dynamite Cops concerned, yeah, I had a little bit easier time with that and sort of figured out a pattern 
one of the strange things in that last fight is that the game sort of throws you a bone and gives you a gun every once in a while, especially after you die. And so what you can do is you can kind of track where the guy's going to reappear. And if you fire the gun and hit him real quick, you take off damage and he completely just disappears. He doesn't have time to fire at you. Right. Um, because if he gets time to fire at you, that's when you get knocked down instantaneously and it's very very frustrating and i think that's kind of what you ran into it's really hard to dodge uh that so if you can kind of get that pattern down um that's not the same one that Krabby was using but that's kind of the one i use and that helped me get through the game and uh you know kind of work around using so many credits at the end awesome so i think we should mention um i don't think either one of us did this but in Dynamite Cop, if you finish all three missions, you get to play a game called Tranquilizer on the Dreamcast. I'm not even sure what this game is, but you get Tranquilizer for finishing all three missions. Did you play this game or check up on this one? No, like I said, I couldn't beat Mission 2 or 3, and um, I didn't look it up. I did see it in the menu. I could have looked it up, but I have not. Yeah, so I just wanted to put that out there. I knew, you know, neither you or I had played it, but, you know, it is part of Dynamite Cop, and so I thought we should mention it. Speaking of things you and I probably didn't touch other than the general game, there's some various other modes, and our buddy Krabby, once again, he was just loving it this month. So, you know, he wanted to try out all the different modes. If you don't know Krabby, he's a really, really good gamer. He's beaten a lot of the NES games that most people won't even touch, like Silver Surfer. He loves playing these games and completing these tough titles. And so there were some modes that he attempted, and uh, some of them sounded really, really brutal, but uh, he seemed to enjoy himself doing it, and he writes... So I've beaten Dynamite Cop once with each character in each mission, which unlocked the showdown mode. I haven't gotten a chance to dig into it much yet, but it seems like it's an expert mode where you play through the same three missions again, but they have certain restrictions or handicaps that make it more challenging, and you're limited to a single credit. I tried mission four, and the catch was that enemy weapons deal way more damage. I was only able to make it to the kitchen on that run. Looks like one of them is time-based, and you have to clear rooms quickly to keep progressing. That one has piqued my interest, and hopefully I'll have some more time to give it a few goes. Also, I got to 42 kills on survival mode with Bruno. Can't seem to quite break 30 with Ivy, and haven't tried with Eddie yet. Before Friend came over, I tried out missions 4, 5, and 6. I don't think I have dedication to finish any of these. All of them seem to limit you to one credit no matter which character you select, so that's a huge hurdle right there. On top of that, they all have a special condition that is brutal. Mission 6 in particular makes it so that no S power-ups appear and you start one hit away from death. That's right, an empty health meter right from the get-go. That's perfectionist mode if I've ever seen one. Gonna have to check out a YouTube video of someone doing that because it sounds pretty intense. I like the idea of Mission 5's time trial, but being limited to only the one credit makes it pretty intimidating to me. Wow. <laughs> yeah, like you said, Krabby's like... You know, he's a master. He likes to go in and chew these games up and spit them out. But for him to say, like, nope, I'll, I'll watch that on YouTube. No, thank you. Like, that's pretty unique for him, you know? 
Yeah, but I mean, the brutality of that, like having nothing on your life bar. I mean, this doesn't even seem fair. Yeah, yeah, no, oh. that really is a perfectionist run kind of thing. All right. So I think that's all I have for gameplay, unless there's something else that you'd like to mention. No, I just, I wanted to ask you, how do you think it felt like the gameplay feel like minute to minute versus other beat-em-ups? Like, how would you compare this game to like a Turtles in Time or like a Final Fight? I know they're completely different because this is fully 3D polygonal and uh, which was new at the time, as you mentioned at the top mm-hmm. of the segment. But I can still see comparing it to Turtles in Time or something. Um, so how would you say just the movement of your character? Was it smooth? Did you felt like you were getting juggled around? Did you feel like you were getting hit cheaply a lot? Stuff that you couldn't react to? Or was the gameplay generally smooth and you felt like you could work out any situation kind of thing? Well, just my opinion, but I felt like Die Hard Arcade was a little clunkier than Dynamite Cop. I didn't feel like the controls were as good at all. It seemed it was a little tougher to move on angles. You got hit a lot of times very cheaply. But in Dynamite Cop, I felt like I had a lot more control. I felt like I was able to spread out enemies more and uh, just react better and didn't seem to lose as many lives as quickly as I did in Die Hard Arcade. Comparing it to games such as like Turtles in Time, Streets of Rage... I feel like both games are very sort of chaotic in the sense that you get put on this one kind of square of area to fight in, and then you just move to the next area. It's not like a lot of beat-em-ups where you walk across a landscape or walk down a street. Yeah, it's true. And, yeah, you know, and there's that sort of scrolling that goes on, uh, which gives those games, to me, more depth and, um, you know, just sort of a better feel and appreciation for the setting, which I didn't feel like really does in this game. However, what I do like about the settings of these games is it throws you into different situations, like sometimes you're in a kitchen, sometimes you're in a boardroom, sometimes you're in front of the elevators, you know, so you do kind of get an idea of what that building's like and, and you know, what that setting is. You know, you're not just restricted to just one palette. So, it's fine, but I think I probably prefer the scrolling style a little bit better. How about you, or what do you think about any of that? You know, I, I largely agree with you, and what you said about the difference between Die Hard Arcade and Dynamite Cop, I agree completely. In fact, I played through Die Hard exactly one time, but I kept wanting to go back to Dynamite Cop because I found it to be so much more smoother playing and more fun as a result. So totally agree there. As far as comparing it to older things, I like the way you brought out like that you're usually scrolling through a level, whether it's vertically or horizontally, like, um, some of those Ninja Turtles games, you're actually walking like that. And Streets of Rage, too. Like, you're walking downward instead of left to right, which is uh, gives it a lot more depth. I wouldn't put the same value judgment that you did on it, saying that that way is better or, you know, that you preferred it, basically. Because I actually like the room-to-room nature of the Die Hard and Dynamite Cop. It's almost like um, the original Zelda or... Doom, you know, like it almost reminded Mm -hmm. me of Doom that we were playing last month where you're in a room, you got to clear the room and then you can move on to the next room. To me, it's not better or worse, just different. And I enjoyed that aspect of it. 
Very good. All right, so let's move on to the graphics of the game. As we mentioned before, this was the first beat-em-up to use 3D texture-mapped polygonal graphics. So, how did you feel about playing a fighting game in this sort of 3D polygonal era, Sean? I thought it was cool, but I love this era, <laughs> you know, I really love the Saturn and, you know, obviously I love the PlayStation 1, but the Saturn and Dreamcast, just being in that kind of era of early polygonal graphics, yeah, some some of them are terrible and uh, yeah. not worth jagged. revisiting, <laughs> yeah, totally jagged or warped textures, and the Saturn is, you know, pretty notorious for technical limitations versus the PS1. I'm not trying to set off any fanboys or anything. I love the Sega Saturn, so don't take that the wrong way. But yeah, uh, the graphics for what they were, even on Die Hard, I know they were a little, uh, a little clunky, a little lacking in polish maybe, but I thought they were great because it kind of takes me back to that era. And I, like I said, I'm a huge fan of, of these kinds of graphics with all the, all the jaggies and all the muddy textures and everything. So long as I can tell what's going on and it's inventive and imaginative with what they had to work with, then I can appreciate that. Yeah. I mean, you could tell this is sort of around the time where everybody sort of has their feet wet. Trying to figure all this out as far as making 3D look more and more realistic or changing perspective. And so, I mean, I really appreciate what they're doing here. No, it's not my favorite thing to look at. I think anybody that says it's their favorite thing to look at is probably lying. <laughs> but, you know, it's endearing at the same time because it's something you grew up with, right? I mean, you remember seeing it. And younger people are going to look at it and they're going to say, this looks like crap. We look at it and we say, you know, this was high tech for the time it came out. Yeah. You know, you need to show some respect, uh -huh. kid. <laughs> so it is what it is. And uh, for what it is, it looks great. I mean, I can tell what everything is in the game other than, you know, some of the things you pick up sometimes. It takes you a while to figure out what it is. Yeah. Like what I'm I throwing like pepper in this person's face the <laughs> the black pepper <laughs> yeah <laughs> no but there's like a um the aesthetic of it is is something that i love it's really like you know all these polygons are just like duct taped together and it just comes out looking good and it's a weird aesthetic and i've heard it said like nobody will ever try to recreate this in the way that they recreate pixel art and that may be true but i still i love it yeah, it's really endearing. Uh, one thing I wanted to mention about the graphics, I just had a quick aside note here, is uh, in Dynamite Cop, you actually lose clothes in the game. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> so, Way ahead of its time in that aspect. <laughs> right. You lose clothes as your life meter goes down. And on the inverse, with Die Hard Arcade, one of the neat things about that is, especially if you're playing with four credits, you lose more clothes for each life you lose. Oh, okay. So we probably didn't see that as much because we did the subscan stuff. Right. But if you play with the four credits by the last one, you actually look like Bruce Willis in the movie. You've got like the tank top on and the no shoes, you know, oh, cool. and, you know, the ragged <laughs> pants. So, yeah, so it kind of sticks with the movie a little bit in that sense. But, uh, yeah, I just thought that was kind of a neat touch and the, the losing clothes thing, you know, it's silly, but what in these games is not silly? So, right. you know, why not? 
it reminds me of the game. What's the one that came out? Um, something strip where you like fight people by battling their clothes off or something like yeah, that. Yeah, Akiba's Trip. And there was also there's a couple of Vita games that do it. I think the Senren Kagura and that other game that I played that I talk about, Valkyrie Drive Bukini or whatever it was called. Some of these games are really um, blue, <laughs> for lack of a better word. You know, they're a little uh, risque, but I think in Dynamite Cop, it's not meant to be risque, even as playing as Ivy. It's not like she's stripping down to panties. She just goes into like shorts and a tank top. I don't think it's meant to be like anime girl hentai. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, it's uh, it's more just kind of a kooky, like you said, just another kooky thing thrown into this game. Yeah. Fighting your clothes right. off. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, moving on from graphics, let's talk a little about the music and sound. The music was composed by Howard Drossen. And I know that you spent a lot of time listening to this soundtrack. I did not have the time to do that for this. Uh, but from what I remember, it was sort of like overly dramatic and cheesy kind of went along with the game. So I wanted to get your thoughts on that because I know that you put a lot more into listening to the soundtrack. <laughs> you are totally clowning me right now. You know I didn't pay too much attention to the music. <laughs> Come on, man. I thought you said you did at the beginning of the show. No, no. I said... <laughs> I said that when I was playing Deep Scan, I was listening to headphones because I wanted to listen to real music. <laughs> I'm with you, like the music. And you got to keep it. I, I'm actually playing these games on a tube TV that doesn't have like, I don't have a sound system on it or anything. And it's it's not like when we played um, Secret of Mana where it's Super Nintendo chip. It's like actual digital music. And... Uh, if I don't crank the speaker, I'm not going to hear it too well in any event. So that's my excuse. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. So again, we've talked about music before and this sort of idea of it being adequate. I thought it was adequate for this game. I, I didn't think, you know, it was anything I would rush out to buy on vinyl or anything like that. They came out with the diehard arcade uh, soundtrack. So uh, it wasn't Doom. No. <laughs> you know, <Hell> no. <laughs> but, but what is <laughs> right anyway, I thought that one of the things that was a little grating was the sort of a limited amount of tracks. They sort of looped on to each other. And so there wasn't a whole lot of variety, but at the same time, I mean, I mean, what does it take to finish this game? What? 20 minutes, maybe not counting all your deep scan <laughs> you have to play. Right. It's a, it's a very, very short game and, uh, you know, a very quick setting. So. And the sound effects, too, are actually pretty good. I don't want to totally dismiss them because I did like when there are some weapons like you have these spears or really long poles that you kind of twirl over your head. And they did a good enough job that when you're hitting an enemy with one of these things, you can really hear the impact and it made it feel more satisfying. So I don't want to make too much out of it, but I think the sound effects were also you know, pretty adequately done and appropriate for what was going on. I agree. Make them bite 
to make a phony booty bleed and put them in a bucket like a chicken feed. Check out the pick up the lid and not a quitter. I'm nice, y'all. Then I'ma dust you off and dust you off twice. You never heard this so observe it all hysterical fan. Maddox of the Asiatic miracle man. Prominent, dominant, McCoy and the real. If you're another brother's fan, forget how you feel, cause he's so so. I got the instinct. They call me deputy dog, but put your ass in the clink. Innovating, devastating, and don't want a single now. Let me see your earrings jingle. John. So let's get into our final thoughts. I'm posing a few questions here, and I want to know which game you enjoyed more as a part of your spots, and whether you think these games are worth their current value. Wow, so worth the current value, I'll tackle that one first. That's a tough question, because like you mentioned, these games are so short. I don't know how long it took me to beat Dynamite Cop, but my, there's a timestamp at the end of Die Hard, and that took me 18 minutes to play through. So to pay 70 or 80 bucks or whatever that's going for, the question is more, how many times are you going to play it? And are you going to play tons of deep scan? <laughs> well, I probably should have said this before you even started responding to my questions. Die Hard Arcade's going for about 120 complete right oh, now. Oh boy! Okay. On eBay, and Dynamite Cops going anywhere from about 50 to 60 dollars. So that kind of gives you some you know numbers to work with. There. Well, that lets me know. First of all, I will never complete my copy of Die Hard Arcade, which doesn't have the <laughs> manual. I'll never have that. Uh, <laughs> so maybe I should just sell it. <laughs> <laughs> So, yeah, it's hard to say that it's worth that. As much fun as I had with the game, and I'll get into my final thoughts, there's not a lot of games that are worth $120 to me. I got to be honest with you. Um, I think the only time I ever spent that much money on a game ever was when I bought Valkyrie Profile last year. And that was a time when I was just pissing away money constantly. And I said screw it. I want this game. I don't care how much it costs. You know what I mean? Like I was just being a moron. So yeah, for Die Hard Arcade, I don't think I could make that same leap. Yeah. The good thing is, like I said, uh, if you have a modded Saturn, just go for it. Just burn it. Uh, Hopefully we'll get to a point soon where we can put um, an SD card mod into a Saturn. Um, But as far as which game did I enjoy more, I definitely enjoyed them both a great deal, but uh, it's pretty easy for me to say that I enjoyed Dynamite Cop way more. I think I made a mistake by playing Dynamite Cop first, because then playing Die Hard was a step back, obviously. I really wish I had played Die Hard first, because I think I would have appreciated it more. I really enjoyed them both. I wouldn't say in any way that Die Hard is not worth playing. It's totally worth playing. So, yeah, just my final thoughts in general was that 
I loved both of these games. They were so enjoyable and fun and just, I don't play a lot of games like this at all, like ever frequently, you know, like games like this only exist in this time era. Like the wackiness of these games, the only thing I can kind of even compare it to are the Power Stone games. Have you ever played those? Yeah. Yeah. So those are different because those are one-on-one fighters, but they are just also this kind of goofy like arena fighter where you're running around and you can pick up anything and you just throw in stuff at each other and it's it's just off the wall fun. And that's the way I felt when I was playing Dynamite Cop. It doesn't have the speed of Power Stone, but I just felt like, oh, pick up a gun and, you know, unload and then pick up this pole and swing it around my head with this cool animation and uh, doing these uh, weird suplexes and scissor kicks and all these crazy things. I was just, I was really having fun, really having a blast. And, um, I think just that these are both one sitting games. I'll definitely go back to these if I just, oh, I just want to screw around and just play through a game. Just so much fun. Just fun, fun, fun. And um, yeah, the pricing is hard, but, you know, everybody knows you can just burn, <laughs> you can just burn Dreamcast games. There's no, uh, no modification necessary. Any Dreamcast will play the games and uh i don't even care about saying like the legality of backups and all that crap everybody knows that's just a bunch of crap that people say to make themselves feel better about doing it so it's totally up to you but that's how i played it so very cool all right well first i want to start off in saying yeah i can understand like you playing dynamite cop first and then coming back to die hard arcade and how that felt like a step back for you my response is if you would just follow the damn checkpoints that I set forth for <laughs> you, we wouldn't have these problems. Very true. So I did it the correct way and played Die Hard Arcade first. And, uh, yeah, I mean, it, it's hard to say as far as value. I definitely don't think Die Hard Arcade is worth the value. And I understand why it's so high valued. And this price has pretty much doubled within the last few years as collecting games for the Saturn has, you know, just kind of shot through the roof. You know, like you said, the setting time is so small for this, and you have to play deep scan for so long just to kind of get started and actually finish the game. You know, those sort of aggravations probably play into a little of why I would pick Dynamite Cop. It's much easier to pick up and put down. The controls are a lot better in that game, and it's half the price of Die Hard Arcade. So if you got a Dreamcast, that's certainly one that I would add to my list. I never feel bad about paying $50 for a game because, you know, like I've said before, new games are $60 and you're buying a game, you don't even know if it's good or not. So why does paying $50 for a game off-put people? It's a fun game. You can play it with a friend or, you know, your kids like I do. It's easy to pick up and put down. Just pull off your shelf, pop it in, and have a good time. And, uh, you know, I really enjoyed it. I have to say, like, comparing it to old games like Sega Genesis beat-em-ups or, you know, beat-em-ups on the Super Nintendo, I'll be honest, I probably enjoy those 2D games better than I enjoy 3D games, but I can really appreciate what they were trying to uh, do at the time with this type of beat-em-up with the polygonal graphics and trying to make it more 3D, making it more up and down and side-to-side as opposed to just side-to-side. 
So, yeah, I can appreciate that kind of thing and think they really did a good job. I love the fact that it's wacky and they threw in all this stuff. It doesn't bother me at all. You know, it's very, very loosely based on Die Hard. And to be quite honest, if they wouldn't have set the first game in a building, they could have probably called it whatever the hell they wanted to and not gotten sued for it, right? So, uh, yeah, both games are a lot of fun. Enjoyed my time with them. But eh, if I had to pick one, I would say Dynamite Cop is the better fit and uh, would be for most people. Awesome. Well, that's our thoughts on Dynamite Cop and Die Hard Arcade. Let's talk about what we're going to be playing in September and October. Sean, I'll let you start it off since you're hosting in September. Very good. By the time you're hearing this, you should already be playing Batman the Telltale Series Season 1. There's five episodes. The checkpoints are up. We're doing one episode a week, except for the last two episodes, which we will do in the final week of the month. As of this recording, I've played episode one, and it's hard to resist going way ahead of everybody else and playing through the game, because I don't want to forget uh, things that go on in the game as the host. So the first episode left me with a good impression, and I'm excited to see uh, where it goes. And uh, I'm really happy that we're finally playing a Telltale game after so many years of alluding to (laughs) possibly doing one for the show. So we're finally doing it. Yeah, I was getting texts from Krabby today. He's already playing Batman. He's like, uh, so what can I talk about? I'm like, dude, it's only right. September 2nd. I'm like, <laughs> calm the hell down. You can't like talk about anything in the first checkpoint until that week is over. As far as plot's concerned, now you can talk about gameplay or any like mechanics or anything like that if you want to. Or say you're enjoying the game. Yeah. So uh, he's like, well, I'm just going to have to take some notes and, you know, write some stuff down. I was like, okay, fine. So he's a huge Batman fan. Uh, He and Duke Togo are always going at each other about who's better, Superman or Batman. Krabby is on Team Batman. So, yeah, he's really, really enjoying it. And from what I understand, it sticks very close to some of the Batman lore, which if you're going to please him, you know, you better come correct with that mythology for this type of series. But uh, anyway, excited to play that. I'm going to get started on that as soon as I finish Axiom Verge, which should be very soon. And then in October, please join us as we have a very exciting pick. We're kicking it back to the NES. And Sean, I'm kind of surprised that you went with this game, man. We are playing Monster Party for the NES. Uh, Is this one you played growing up? Yeah, this stuck out on the the list you gave me to choose for a a nice spooky Halloween-ish game like we do every year in October. And uh, this game is very special to me because my late friend Jesse and I played it a lot when we were kids, but we never beat it. He owned it. I didn't. I would go over to his house and play it or he would bring it over. And it was one of those kind of games we didn't really know what to do. And we just goofed around with it more than we actually like tried to play through it and complete it. So looking forward to finally rolling the credits on this game. It's going to be awesome. Yeah, this is when I played as a kid as well and just have such great memories of it. I did beat it when I was younger and uh, looking forward to knocking it out again. It's a really fun, quirky game, and I think it's going to go really great with the theme of Halloween. So, uh, yeah, please join us in September and October for some fun games. Thanks a lot for listening.
that's going to do it for another episode. Thanks for listening and thank you for participating in the playthrough. In October, we'll continue our long-standing tradition of sinking our fangs into dark and spooky experiences when we throw a monster party on our trusty Nintendo Entertainment Systems. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next month on the Playcast. Hey man, you there? Yep, I'm here. <sighs> Sorry that took so long. I was on giant f***ing grasshopper duty. One just <laughs> got in the house. It's that season. My wife was like, I think there's a huge praying mantis or something in the house that I need you to help me get rid of. And I looked and I was like, no, it's just one of those huge flying grasshoppers, you know? Yeah. But it is it is big. It's like an inch and a half long. Nice. So... Had to escort him outside. We are going to talk longer about the games than it would take to play through one of them. (laughs) (laughs) So true. All right, so let's round out our discussion of these two games with our final (laughs) thought. No work tomorrow. (laughs) Oh, man.